What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 69th draft of the Untitled Movie Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Matt Rohrbeck, alongside my BFCA buddy, Eric Marchin. Tonight on Baby Blue, fun-loving <laughs> adults get in life-affirming situations. We did it. Congratulations. Here we are, the 69th draft, what everyone's been waiting for. Now we're just idiots, but we're going to talk about some erotic thrillers today. Yep. As we uh, lube each other up from our respective <laughs> yes. homes. Consensually. Um, yeah. So uh, if you guys didn't know, if this is your first time listening and you just saw 69th draft, ooh, I want to listen to that. Uh, this is the Untitled Movie Podcast. Uh, each week, Eric and I get together, or usually every week, Eric and I get together, uh, talk about you know what we've been watching, uh, what's going on in the entertainment industry, um, a plethora of other things like what you should be purchasing at home and, and what trailers. What nipple clamps we're thing, using. But- Yes, uh, exactly. Um, If you like this, we do another show called Untitled Movie Reviews, where Eric and I review new release films, uh, usually uh, more professionally and um, in a lot less time than this meandering thing that you're listening to now. Um, We have new reviews out uh, for uh, the Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls documentary, The Last Dance, which is excellent. We did 40 minutes on that. You should go listen to that. Um, We also did a review for um, The Lovebirds starring uh, Kumail Nanjani and Issa Rae, um, which you guys can check out uh, probably as you're listening to this. That should be up. We have reviews out for Scoob. Uh, Capone, and we should have a review for the high note very, very soon. Um, things are starting to ramp up on the review side of things. We were quiet there uh, at the beginning of the pandemic as studios were trying to figure out, you know, their re- release strategy. But um, as we kind of, you know, go deeper and deeper into this, um, <laughs> I see you like smirking when I said deeper and deeper. It is the 69th draft. Um, we're getting more and more streaming films. Uh, uh, coming out. So uh, <laughs> stay tuned for more reviews. Eric, 69th draft. Let's talk erotic thrillers. Um, Ump is ready to hump. Oh, there you go. Love it. Um, yeah, this is something, I mean, it's mostly a joke, uh, but I think we watched a few of the same ones and I want to talk about, you know, that genre as a whole. Yeah. <laughs> as a whole. Um <laughs> Uh, very prevalent in the, you know, the late eighties, early nineties, I think is the, you know, the climax of when erotic thrillers were popular. Um, they've kind of gone away. Uh, we are getting a new erotic thriller this year from the director of fatal attraction, um, starring Adrian Lynn. Yeah. Adrian Lynn, uh, starring Ben Affleck and, um, uh, Anna Darmus. Uh, yeah. Anna Darmus. Uh, but more, more totally importantly, forgot. More importantly, the sexiest man of all, Tracy Letts. Yes. God bless him. Uh, so, Eric, I don't know where you wanted to start. There's a couple that we watched um, uh, that we both watched, and then we can kind of just talk about some of your favorites uh, of the genre as a whole. Um, <laughs> I keep saying that. Uh, I watched, from my thing, I, I teased this on the other episodes, but Nevis and I watched – uh, uh, Wild Things, Basic Instinct, and Fatal Attraction, and there are you know a bunch more that I've seen in uh you know over time, but those are the three that I watched over the last uh, couple weeks. 
Um, I know you watched. Did you watch those three or which ones did you watch? Uh, I boned up on uh, Wild Things and uh, what else? Oh, Basic Instinct, because I feel those are two of the seminal ones in in my own personal life. Um, But I think the one that you watched that we should talk about overall that kind of kickstarted it was fatal attraction i I mean i've seen the movie before it's been a while but um that kind of seemed to be especially with lynn having a new film this year yeah 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 and even like what would happen like themes and ideas that would carry on from you know the late 80s into the early 90s like even just casting michael douglas yeah michael douglas is a horny motherfucker eh you know yeah between between basic instinct fatal attraction and disclosure like he was in a lot of these films typecast if you will um but then even sharon stone like after basic instinct she was in sliver which was another one of these and then you know having a writer like Joe Esterhouse, who kind of was famously known for writing showgirls and being paid $3 million for it. And then, you know, the film being a box office bomb and even Paul Verhoeven coming back to direct that and that movie not working out. Um, And I just think it's interesting to sort of look at these movies and how they were kind of prevalent when, you know, the internet was not around. And as soon as the internet became a household commodity, these movies kind of went on the wayside. And when you look back at them and how kind of they were considered titillating and sensual and kind of uh, taboo for the time and like you'd watch these on cable and try to make sure that your parents wouldn't walk in the room while you're watching right them. yeah now they seem very kind of innocent and and tame uh by today's standards uh yeah least. i mean i, I kind of see where you're coming from with that i mean i i see what your point about the internet and with you know porn being readily available to anyone who has an internet connection then maybe that's one of the main reasons why erotic thrillers kind of went away i don't know if anyone was using them for that specific reason or not i'm not saying uh, no one did yeah well There's you haven't heard the people, story yeah. the common story of the sharon stone scene and basic instinct like anytime somebody would rent that movie out and return it the it would be that one sequence sanitized worn out. oh worn out okay yeah like <laughs> yeah, on the sanitized of it. That's totally fair. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously yeah. there were a lot of people who used it for that way, but um, I find it fascinating that we're, I mean, whatever, to each their own. I'm not going to kink shame anyone. Um, I don't know. Like, I, I, it's fascinating to me that this was such a huge thing because I went back and looked at, you know, like you can Wikipedia, like list of erotic thrillers and the, and the genre and things like that. And there were so many in that late 80s, early 90s, e- even into the late 90s. Um, and then they kind of just went away and we, we haven't really gotten many. And I, I don't know. I don't know if I agree completely that you go back and watch some of these and that they're tame. I would say for fatal attraction, if we want to start there, um, I think that was the one that I hadn't seen that Nevis and I were like, all right, let's go on a Michael Douglas, uh, horny double feature. Um, (laughs) and we'll watch fatal attraction and basic instinct. And, um, I don't know. I think if you're, there's some there was something off with fatal attraction that I was just mostly like bored with and that like like you said it just kind of maybe feels tame now or or maybe at the time it would have been more shocking or or something like that but there's something with fatal attraction that just didn't click with me and I just didn't really enjoy it and I feel like maybe 
it wasn't as over the top or ridiculous as something like a basic instinct or a wild things, even like wild things being the, you know, the tip of the, this is, this is ridiculous. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I know. (laughs) I'm doing these things on purpose. Um, and then fatal attraction being on the tame end and then basic instinct being, I think just a really highly entertaining movie that has some fucked up sequences. And, and I think the twisty narrative of that works where in fatal attraction, it is more straightforward and it just kind of, uh, I don't know. There was something off about fatal attraction that just didn't work with me. And that I was shocked that it got, you know, nominated for best picture and um, a bunch of other awards. And that just didn't make any sense to me, but um, it's the classier one, right? It's, it's the one that was nominated for awards and, you know, uh, became this box office hit. And at the time, like that was like, you know, quote unquote, the fear of, of the adulterer that, you know, the person you were having an affair with would come back and, you know, teach you a lesson and ruin your life. And, you know, this became a a common thing in, into the, you know, the nineties where, you know, it became more of a thriller than it was erotic. Some of these movies are, you know, erotic in the sense that they think they're pushing the boundaries, but they're, they're really not. I mean, yeah, Paul Verhoeven, I think is, is a situation or a case where he can push those kind of European concepts on, you know, North American audiences that might be still somewhat uh, taboo today. But even with the writing that, you know, Joe Esterhouse does with, with that and even Jade, like, it feels like some of it isn't as um, sort of provocative as, as, as movies that we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years. And I just think it's, it's time as well. And what, you know, censorship is and North America specifically has always had sort of a, a strange relationship with sexuality in movies, specifically with how we see the male and female bodies being depicted on uh, the screen where we're better suited or more comfortable with horrific violence than we are yeah. with sensuality. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it is interesting to look at fatal attraction and say like, okay, that movie, it's most famous scene. Well, there are two, one, which, you know, the ending, there's a different, there's a whole different ending uh, that they tested for that film that didn't work. And then they changed it. But the, the, the rabbit scene is always the one that people bring up. Yeah. Um, but when you move on the, the thriller aspect, it always seemed to be, okay, well, you have a cop who is either kind of circling the drain or on the edge of being corrupt or dirty himself, falling into a case or situation that explores his darker side you know basic in basic instinct wild things someone to watch over me uh jade all of these movies have that formula jennifer eight like there's a ton of them and within that there's the the femme fatale or the temptress and that's kind of played up in a film noir kind of manner that lures uh the red-blooded male in and explores things that he didn't know that he was turned on by and then there's a twist of violence in there whether or not you know there's a killer or um you know mystery to be solved within that and again i think some work better than others i think probably the best of them is uh basic instincts if we're going for the pure like 90s erotic thriller and even that there's things in in the movie that don't really hold up one michael douglas might be the worst police officer ever 
Yeah, it's not in, great. In, in motion picture history. I think Sharon Stone is and generally still is really good in that film. And she knows the I kind agree. of performance she's giving in that movie. And, and Sharon Stone's always kind of been a, an otherworldly performer where not everything she does works. Because I think she ha- a movie has to be created around her. And with this role specifically, I think, you know, having worked with Paul Verhoeven already on Total Recall she was comfortable enough with him to go to some maybe edgier places than what would have been thought of if, you know, you had a, an American filmmaker uh, behind the wheel. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you. Um, I think out of them, my basic instinct is the top and that's the one that I probably revisit the most. And I think I, again, like I mentioned earlier, I think it's a, a genuinely, you know, entertaining and twisty movie. And I think, you talked about it a little bit too, and some of the best ones take elements from, you know, noir movies and, and, and things like that, film noir and, and stuff like that and involve, you know, yeah, like you said, a police officer and a femme fatale. And, and when you take those elements and just add another le- level of, you know, eroticism, I guess is the word, but like that kind of just adds like this thing, like you said, that taboo nature of just being like, I, I can imagine seeing these at the time in that first sequence, even in basic instinct with the ice pick and just how violent it is. And that classic Paul UV just going over the top with how, you know, gory and, and, uh, and upsetting some of the violence is, uh, I think adds to it. And then, um, and yeah, I, you know, Michael Douglas, a terrible police officer in that movie, but there's something, watchable about that entire thing and 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 it's like i think wild things is that trashy kind of you know erotic thriller that people might think of when you think of that genre and i you know with the you know the threesome scene and the pool sequence and and stuff like that that is that kind of like you know i'm watching something that's like kind of sleazy yeah they're sleazy yeah is the perfect word um but that movie was incredibly entertaining as well and i'd seen wild things or i've seen certain things certain scenes from wild things i can't remember the last time i I have i sat down and watched the entire thing and nevis hadn't seen it at all and uh we had a blast watching it like it's so ridiculous and a little bit over the top and there's a twist on top of another twist on top of another twist on top of another twist and i think that's kind of what i want out of these movies and i think it's something we talked about not to compare it to like the lovebirds which we just reviewed which you guys can listen to but like um which is not an erotic thriller at all let's be clear but um of like picking a lane and committing to it and just like either go all out or or not and i think that's why i enjoy something like wild things which isn't like a great movie but it is incredibly entertaining and i think commits to being a trashy sleazy erotic thriller and that's kind of what I want out of that subgenre is just like something trashy. Like if you're going to commit to it, go all out. It's like why you watch professional wrestling or something like that. Of like, just go all out. Like I'm not here for something deep or, or emotional or anything like that or, or thought provoking. And I mean, it can be that don't get, don't get me wrong. And I think fatal attraction maybe at the time was that, or tried to be a little bit more, but in fatal attraction, I felt like just like Michael Douglas is, is, is a piece of shit. And he had what coming like, he had it coming like you're gonna be garbage and like then it's gonna come back and bite you in the ass and like the way that they portray glenn close's character i'm like not completely on board and kind of make you know michael douglas try to be sympathetic in this situation where you're just like uh, you're 
you're not really at all. And I just think that maybe that's why that movie didn't connect, or maybe it was trying to go for something a little bit deeper uh, about all of that stuff. And, and I mean, maybe I'm wrong because it got nominated for all those awards, but um, it's a very male point of view. Yeah. Which I didn't, didn't connect with me. And like I said, if I'm going to watch one of these movies, I want it to kind of be sort of trashy and just like go all out. If you're going to, if you're going to, make one of these and uh yeah i don't know i i going through i'm trying to look at a, a, a list of them and i'm trying to see when this era kind of ended and like what's the most recent well, erotic thriller that i got? would say i i want to i want to mention this with with wild things wild things came at the tail end of this yeah this is like uh, late 90s, era because right? it's 90 like... 98 so this was directed by wild things was directed by john mcnaughton who directed henry portrait of a serial killer so right. going from this dark disturbing character piece on you know, based on an actual uh, murderer um, who killed women to making this sleazy sort of exploitative genre piece where everybody gets naked and has sex or gratuitous Kevin Bacon, Bacon bits um, in the movie. Um, It's, it's interesting to see that like that movie is probably like, even though it's at the tail end of the kind of, the pantheon of these movies it the still heyday. is like the quint the heyday it's the quintessential sort of representation of kind of the erotic thriller with a little extra sleaze added on to it and i remember as a kid the one thing i always thought was really weird about the movie was that bill murray was in it yes and I was like, yeah why the hell is bill murray in this and i had no reasons. idea one because at this time bill murray kind of was this was before Rushmore. And so he was kind of on a a career downslide at this point. So he was just kind of taking work as a character actor and he became friends with John McNaughton because both of those guys are from Chicago and they're just buddies. So he said, yeah, I'll be this, you know, sleazy lawyer and wear a, a neck brace throughout the whole thing. And, you know, like cut to me for exposition and, and like he's fun in the movie, but and yeah, that's like, what I mean. Main... Like why I like that movie is because of things like the Bill Murray character of just like if you're going to go like that's such a weird casting choice, and and it feels like it shouldn't totally work with what that movie is, but for some reason no. it just does, and 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 that's why I really enjoyed Wild Things is just like you commit to the bit and just kind of go you know what yeah Bill Murray makes sense let's put him in this movie and it's not (laughs) incredibly distracting because the movie knows what it is I think for the most part it's like a yeah a sleazy erotic thriller where Bill Murray's playing a trashy lawyer and I'm like yeah I'm all in and Matt Dillon is so good at that kind of scumbag um uh perfect scumbag um and uh, I I don't know. Yeah, Nev Campbell in her heyday. I mean, Denise Richards looks fantastic in that movie and is, is yeah. interesting. I mean, like, like if, her... we're be, if we're being like, you know, red-blooded males, I think yeah. Denise Richards at this time, you know, attracted a large number of male moviegoers to see. Right. Wild so that's what I mean. If you're going to commit to Starship it. Troopers. So, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, and then... Oh shit! What was I gonna bring up? Oh, uh, would something like Eyes Wide Shut in '99? Do you consider that an erotic thriller? Or you know what? That's that's a that's an interesting question because there are there are elements of the erotic thriller in there, and it, the movie was made 
I think it started production in 96, 97. I mean, it didn't get released until 99, but that's because Stanley Kubrick was notorious for taking his time on a production. It was his last film. I'd say that it would kind of maybe fit in there, but again, it would almost be a erotic thriller adjacent where it's maybe quote unquote above uh, most of these movies as elevated erotic thriller, (laughs) elevated erotic or erect erotic thrillers, if you will. (laughs) Um, and, 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 I, and I think that's a fair kind of uh, question to ponder whether or not that kind of fits in there. Um, but you can even look at something like uh, Sidney Lumet's uh, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which right. was released in which 2007. You right? one, yeah, and this was also one of, of Lumet's last movies with Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh, Ethan Hawke. And the first scene of that movie is this very uh, aggressive sex scene between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Marissa Tomei. If you've ever wanted to see Philip Seymour Hoffman get his I've, fuck on, I've that's seen the it. film. Um, yeah, I'm sure you have. Um, but yeah, like, like, or you look at like Adam McGoin, who directed Erotica in the 90s and was, you know, critically acclaimed by, you know, Siskel and Ebert for that film, which kind of was a deconstruction of the erotic thriller, but then goes and remakes the French film Natalie in 2003 as Chloe, and then also kind of commits to the kind of not sleaze, but the. Well, Chloe was 2009. Oh, is that? Oh, okay. Maybe 2003 yeah. was Natalie then, but yeah, yeah. it was a remake of a French film. Um, and so there were still erotic thrillers being made, or even that horrible one with Idris Elba and Beyonce, uh, Obsessed, where Ali Larder becomes obsessed with Idris Elba. Um, so they were still making them afterwards. And like Jane, yeah, even now, Fifty Shades is kind of in that. Sure. Group Trashy of kind of. Yeah, that's totally fair. I think that's probably the the biggest version of that in recent memory. I mean, I'm, I'm looking oh, yeah, through it's the biggest. <laughs> yeah, I've never watched them. Um, but what amazes me is how many direct VOD sequels wild things got where you have wild things too. And then you have wild things, diamonds in the rough, and then you have wild <laughs> things foursome. So they just committed to it. Like the fourth one's called foursome. Come on. Um, they look terrible. I went and watched um, most of the uh, the trailers on iTunes after we watched the the first movie, and they just look god awful. Um, even Basic Instincts gotten a couple sequels, where I think even recently they did a one when Sharon Stone came back, and I think it was either three or that was four. Basic Instinct two. That was Basic Instinct oh, two. two. That was two. Okay, yeah, with Which David Morrissey as the police officer. Yeah, two thousand six. Yeah. Two thousand six. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I've never seen. Have it's you? Terrible. It's terrible. Is it real bad? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Real I, bad. Chloe, I, Chloe, I like a lot. I remember seeing um, all, set in Toronto, isn't it? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which I remember uh, one of the, I guess not the first movies, but I just was like, oh, this is interesting. It's in, it's set in Toronto. Yeah, Wild Things Foursome came out in 2010. If we're going through some more. Uh, you know, recent erotic thrillers as categorized by Wikipedia. Um, yeah. As we get later into the late two thousands and 2010s, that list gets lower and lower. And like you said, um, uh, the 50 shades of gray franchise is probably knock, knock the Eli Roth movie with Anna de Armas and, um, and uh, Keanu Reeves, I guess would be a more recent one in 2015, which I remember, uh renting on vod and it did i'm like oh this is kind of a throwback to you know the trashy 
it's not very good, but um, but I was surprised. I'm like, oh, I haven't seen, you know, I'm not saying Eli Roth's a, a high profile filmmaker by any means, but he's a pretty prominent one. But like him doing a VOD erotic thriller was just kind of strange to me. And, um, and that kind of buys into the campiness and the, and the ridiculousness of that genre with that, you know, there's a, that threesome scene with, with him and the, and the two young girls in that movie is just ridiculous. And kind of, I'm like, Oh, we, I haven't seen this in a movie that just commits to being trashy, um, from a filmmaker like this in a while. So I remember kind of low key appreciating it for that, even though it's not a great movie. I think the paper boy kind of falls into the category as well uh, as a kind of like erotic thriller. That's really sleazy. That's kind of maybe trying to be a little bit like something like wild things, but push the envelope even further. Yeah. You have the, uh, the Jennifer Lopez movie by Rob Cohen, the boy next door director of fast. Oh yeah. Um, That's probably a more recent one. There's a Um, scene where it's like, I love your mom's cookies. Yeah, yeah, I know it. Um, And then they kind of get lower and lower until uh, now this year we're getting Deep Water, which is supposed to be released in the fall on November 13th by Disney or 20th Century Studios. So I even on the Wikipedia. Yeah, God, the big D releasing it. and it's uh, Adrian Lin's first film in 18 years, and it's the first uh, erotic thriller released by Walt Disney Studios in a very long time. <laughs> That's one of the nice uh, uh, little tidbits. I'm curious about this because, again, as much as I thought Fatal Attraction was, you know, just okay, um, it's interesting. Interesting with Adrian Lin coming back, sort of out of pseudo retirement. Last movie was Unfaithful in. 2002 which was that could be um, in that category with diane lane and yeah uh, which would have been on the, the very tail end of you know of the heyday of erotic thrillers right so um yeah. take taking that much time off 18 years uh between because after fatal attraction um he did uh jacob's ladder indecent proposal lolita and then unfaithful all of those with the exception of jacob's ladder which i think is actually his best film um are erotic thrillers i mean lolita being the remake of uh you know the stanley kubrick movie in the original novel uh then also indecent proposal where uh robert redford proposes to demi moore and woody harrelson as a couple that i'll give you guys a million dollars if i can spend one yes with yeah demi moore. so yeah. like yeah like he was kind of like again the, the king of like erotic Hover, Hove, and yeah. yeah like he kind of fell into that typecasting director's chair of you know you make this kind of movie and you do it in a kind of quote-unquote elegant way that we can you know commercialize these films yeah so i mean with uh and then finishing it off with uh we'll talk about deep water a little bit uh, we haven't seen much from the movie there's no trailer yet it probably will end up getting delayed but I, it, I mean, Disney hasn't moved it yet. It's it a little premature to say that, though, Matt. State. Um, they, um, the premise is a married couple who have fallen out of love with each other begin playing deadly mind games against one another that begin seeing those around them dying. And you have Ben Affleck, Anna de Armas, Tracy Letts, uh, Rachel Blanchard, uh, Lil Ray Howery, Finn Whitrock, um, and some more people. Um, 
interesting because I brought up to you, I'm like, would Gone Girl be considered an erotic thriller? And you were like, I don't think so. Um, and then because I find it interesting with Affleck in this movie and then Anna de Armas, who, who did, who's just her career is skyrocketing, but all, did Knock Knock and keeps getting bigger and bigger. Uh, knock Knock was probably one of the first American films I remember seeing her in, and she's only gotten bigger and bigger since then. And then Affleck doing a, a movie like this. I, I'm really curious to see what this movie is and how, like you mentioned, like how you do an erotic thriller in 2020 and will it be provocative or will it feel kind of tame because of, you know, just how society has changed and how people's have changed since then. Yeah. And, and again, there, there was a time and place for these movies. And if you're making them now, it's almost more of an artistic choice. If anything else, if you want to call it that in, in terms of like, tackling this subgenre specifically so if you're going to make one of these movies you're now basically looking at what's come before and being you know adrian lynn being the guy that kind of really kicked this off you know with fatal attraction he's going to probably be calling back to those movies but on top of that looking at sort of the tropes and the mechanics of what made those movies popular and part of it is chemistry part of it is you know the the voyeuristic nature of these movies that's the other thing that i think is important with these films is that you as the audience member are watching uh in a voyeuristic manner and watching something that you know as a fly on the wall that you might not be privy to in in most cases spying on a couple uh in their most intimate uh moments or seeing something that is very uh hypersexualized so again you all you also had movies like um boxing uh helena and you know body of evidence with madonna and um the hand that rocks the cradle with rebecca de mornay and, and all these movies kind of you know from varying tiers of good to horrible um, played on those tropes that fatal attraction kind of set up. And it was almost like a competition of seeing like how classy can we make these or how um, sort of obscene can we make these and how can we sort of get an, a, a widened audience to watch these films commercially speaking uh, to play on that trend. And again, it's not a trend anymore. So making this, now something like deep water is an artistic choice more so than it is sort of ripping it off yeah so we can only hope deep water kickstarts a new era of erotic thrillers and hopefully this 69th draft also does that um did you ever see this is a uh, wikipedia considers this a subgenre of frank and lola being a neo-noir erotic thriller did you see it with michael with shannon michael and, shannon and uh imogene poots yeah no I haven't seen it. I'm curious now. Maybe I'll watch that and check back. Do in I want to see the Shan man and poots get it on? Possibly. <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll wrap that up and move on to the regular uh, part of the show. Uh, Eric, anything you've been watching uh, that's not an erotic thriller that you wanted to chat about over the last week or so? Yeah. But quickly before we do that, I want to quickly say one more thing. Yeah. The, I think the film that killed the erotic thriller was showgirls. Really, I think that was the beginning of the end because MGM spent all this money 
on getting that production together. And again, they spent almost $3 million on the script, which was unheard of at the time from Joe Esterhouse, who wrote basic instinct and Jade and was kind of considered the quintessential erotic thriller writer of that time. And after that movie bombed horribly, uh, studios didn't want to touch the, the genre again. People have kind of come around on showgirls, haven't they? Or it's kind of a, a, Cult classic it's it's a, a master cult classic, but to be honest, it's not a very good movie. I mean, God, I've probably seen bits and pieces of it over over the ages, but um, I've never actually probably sat down. I think Paul Verho- Verhoeven's one of those guys. Like we watch, we both watch Basic Instinct, but something I've wanted to do uh, on this show and with you for a while is kind of go through his greatest hits and stuff like that, or even the you know the late ninety or the late eighties, early nineties stuff, which was like our our era of, I guess, Pauly V. <laughs> um, I'd be curious to go back and rewatch now that we watch Basic Instinct. Like, I'd love to watch, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, I'd love to watch um, Robocop again. I'd love to watch Showgirls. I'd love to watch Total Recall because um, it's been a, either a very long time or it's those movies that I always remembered from whether it was my parents or my uncle or someone watching as a kid or seeing the box art at a blockbuster Rogers video or something like that. But I don't know. I haven't sat down and watched a lot of his stuff uh, from beginning to end in, in either a very long time or ever. Cause I, I really did like L a lot. Hollow man is that one from God. We were 11 years old when that movie came out or I was 11, you were 12. And I just remember my neighbor, that being a movie that she would like, I remember we weren't supposed to be watching and we would watch hollow man at their house. And I just remember being so traumatized from, you know, the scene where um, the guy falls on and cuts his jugular or his neck open and right. bleeds out everywhere. And just that being the first incredibly violent thing I remember just etched in my brain as a kid. Um, and then starship troopers being the other one where I remember it being a movie that, my parents might've rented at the cottage and then not realized what that movie was and then shut it off as I was watching it or something like that. But yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, hollow man's uh, it's been a while since I've, I've watched that, but I even remember not liking it when I first saw it and I was kind of disappointed with it. And I think rewatching it now, I wouldn't be surprised if it's more problematic because I remember oh, totally, it being yeah. very rapey um and yep. not in a yep. kind of satirical way like a like a deliberate kind of like fetishism kind of way yeah um, not like an l where it's tackled in a way that's kind of you could argue that it's an integral part of the plot and things like that where I, I from what i remember in hollow man and what you're referencing um uh yeah it's kind of cringy and i'd be curious to uh maybe go back and I would like to watch every like I'm sure there's other great stuff in there, but from RoboCop to uh, Hollow Man, um, I would really like to go. You should and... do all of his American stuff and start with yeah. uh, Flesh and Blood, which was '85 or '86 with '85. Yeah. Okay, let's start yeah. there, and then like maybe um, I would love to go through that, and whether we do one a week or. Sometimes I think I'm going to do one a week and then I get in a groove and I just start like with I did what I did with the Kevin Smith movies is just like I start watching them and I'm like, ah, and you're just wearing a full uh, sweatpants. Yeah. And and I just uh, just just enjoying. 
Yeah, exactly. And then you just move on to the next one. So maybe that'll be our next thing. We should do a poly V in review. We keep talking about it. He's but, an interesting um, guy. I mean, I've had the chance to interview him for L and talking to him, he lives up to that reputation of being kind of sleazy, but you know, provocative uh, um, as a trashy uh, kind of filmmaker. But I, I think he's also very insightful. He's become weirdly more obsessed as he gets older with, jesus and religion and you see that in l specifically uh there's a couple moments that take place during the holidays and in sort of christian uh iconography being there but and it'll be really Benedetta, interesting to yeah. see benedetta when that eventually comes out which i think was moved to 2021 um how he's kind of taking the trappings of an exploitation movie and playing it against you know the roman catholic sort of uh ideology yeah, I think it did get pushed because it was supposed to premiere at Cannes and then Cannes got canceled. And then uh, now he might hold it for um, for next year. So Don't hold it too long, Paul. Um, It'll hurt. The, there is a quote from Cannes director, um, is it Terry Fremo, um, who said that it, he would have selected it and that uh, Paul Verhoeven delivers an erotic and mischievous, also political vision of the middle ages in a grandiose production. I'm like, hell yeah. I'm all in. <laughs> um, totally into that. Um, but yeah, Which I would, is what uh, flesh and blood is. I think you would really dig it. Like, even though it's like a medieval fantasy period piece, it's a very lurid film. Okay, cool. So let's do, um, you heard it here first. I'm gonna. I'm. I will watch Flesh and Blood this week, and we can talk about it. I might get into a groove and also watch RoboCop and Total Recall. We'll see. I'll keep in touch with you, and um, yeah. we can we can talk about them as they go. Uh, cool. Uh, moving on to what we've been watching. Um, I mean, I can kick it off if you want, Eric. Or yeah, go throw go? for it, man. Yeah, yeah. we'll just go run go through these because we already spent a good amount of time on erotic thrillers. So. Um, we can just kind of fly through this segment unless there's something specific that you wanted to really go into detail. Uh, I quickly mentioned it, but um, I mean, I'll run through the TV I've been watching Uh, again, go check out our review of the last dance. It's excellent. Um, Eric and I talked about for 40 minutes, a really great conversation about uh, the Michael Jordan Chicago bulls documentary that's airing on Netflix here in Canada, ESPN in the U S but I'm also watching a lot of Nathan for you, which I think is uh, very funny. Um, Eric, I don't know if you've gone through the whole series, but, um, uh, really, really good satire of those kind of, you know, uh, business renovation type shows. And just, I think he's, uh, he's so good at deadpan kind of humor and the way that I I see inspiration in, in, in shows like Nirvana, the band, the show and, and things like that, that mix kind of a narrative with, um, you know, uh, the, the hidden camera type show. Uh, and it's not even hidden camera because people know that they're they're on television for the most part. Um, but just playing with people's expectations and and kind of catching them in awkward situations. I think Nathan for you is 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 very funny and an easy watch. Uh, Harley Quinn continues to be excellent. Uh, season two is very very good. I'm always surprised at um, that that show involves. It could be such a throwaway show, but I think. Uh, whether it involves some nerdy DC characters or um, how you actually get invested in some of the relationships in the show and, and, and the characters like the last episode focused on, on Jim Gordon and his alcohol problem and his relationship with his daughter, Barbara and her being Batgirl and things like that. And, and as well as like 
the friendship between Harley Quinn and, and Poison Ivy and Poison Ivy's uh, relationship with Kite Man and, and stuff like that. Like uh, the show is is a lot better than I ever expected and I'm, I'm really, really digging it. And there's more there than just being kind of a throwaway funny uh, DC animated show um we brought it up in our review of scoob of that harley quinn is is doing that right not saying that scoob and harley quinn are even remotely comparable but um harley quinn i think does a great job of kind of taking that history of dc comics and and playing with it in fun ways where scoob fails to do that with the hanna-barbera characters and you mentioned harvey birdman um being another comparable to harley quinn um which I think is, is really, really smart. Uh, Rick and Morty is great. I think this latter half of season four um, has been, there's was a, like, I didn't love last week's episode, which was kind of an homage to alien and stuff like that. Um, but this week's episode I think was incredibly smart. And, and if you go back and watch the premiere of the second half of the season, where it kind of deconstructs the sitcom and what Rick and Morty is, um, I think is really, really smart. Uh, so having a blast with Rick and Morty, um, I watched all of the Kevin Smith movies, so I've finished watching the entire View Askew universe. Um, so I watched Jay and Silent Bob reboot for the first time, um, because I skipped it when it did that weird, uh, release that you went and watched, Eric. Um, totally understand your thoughts. I think you talked about them on this show. Um, I forget what episode it was, but I remember you giving your impressions. Um, I didn't mind reboot. Uh, I thought it's not a good movie by any means, but again, I have this weird, I have the soft spot for Kevin Smith and, and even going back and watching his movies. Yes. Certain things definitely don't age well. Uh, some of the language and even some of the subject matter, especially the language and some of the humor, uh, doesn't really, really hold up, but they were such seminal films of my, you know, teen years and things like that. And, um, I do think that he is an interesting guy and he has interesting thoughts and, and, um, I really think that it's complicated where the juvenile stuff doesn't really mix super, super well with, um, some of the bigger themes that he's trying to play with, but I don't know, like every one of his movies, I basically gave a three star for the most part, just because like I gave them all passing grades just because part of that's nostalgia. Part of that is just genuinely kind of enjoying some of the stupidity of them and the Jay and silent Bob characters. And as the more that they get involved, it kind of gets zanier and more ridiculous and kind of loses you a bit. But um, I don't know. I, 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 I kind of, enjoyed revisiting all of those films that are part of that universe and reboot. Um, even though it can be incredibly cringy, um, throughout the entire thing, I, I think by the end it kind of, I don't know. It's, I, I saw the evolution of Kevin Smith, both the man and the filmmaker throughout those movies. And I kind of ended up low key enjoying it. Um, but I totally get Eric why you thought it was excruciating. I understand. <laughs> yeah. Snoochie boochies and such. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I revisited, uh, two movies that I, uh, three movies that I really, really, um, love edge of tomorrow, which I hadn't watched since we saw the screening way back. Um, not way back, but 2014. When was that? Um, was it 14, 14 or 15? I think yeah. it was 14. Um, what a, what a great movie. Um, forgot how great it was. Um, I think expertly, 
setup. Um, I think again that so a concept we've seen numerous, numerous times where you could say Groundhog Day, but action movie or Groundhog Day, but horror movie. Um, but I just think it, it does this so so well. I think Emily Blunt and Tom Cruise are um, are incredibly captivating, and um, I think again for say what you want about Tom Cruise, I think he's one of the best action uh actors out there and i just uh, i christopher mccrory chipping in on the on the script and um i just think it's a expertly crafted action mystery kind of movie and uh really love the concept and i think it's executed perfectly i gotta say two things about that movie as well one the editing is phenomenal in sort of how we see the same scenes repeat again and again and we are accustomed to the Tom Cruise character going through those events over yeah. and over again. Um, and two, I think that that performance is one of Cruise's best in the last 10 years of his career, because it's the first time I've seen Tom Cruise, not afraid to play someone who is insecure yeah. and somebody who just is not the hero that he's always made out to be. He's actually taking a risk with his persona as a movie star and playing somebody who's rather unlikable and pathetic and, you know, willing to do whatever he has to, to survive. And only through living that same day over and over again, becomes the type of Tom Cruise archetype we're used to by the end of the movie. And I think that's a really interesting arc for him as an actor and as someone playing a character that we're very accustomed to. And I'm surprised at how little I remembered and retained from that movie because I totally forgot that that was kind of the hook is that he's like a deserter and he's just kind of like, no, I'm not going to fucking war. Fuck that. He's a coward. He's He's a a coward. And he's basically a no offense to any publicist, but he's he's a publicist for the the army right so he's not an actual soldier and he says that right at the beginning and i totally forgot that that was the concept and even like i remember really enjoying the movie but i just did not retain much of it and i knew like the big beats and things like that but rewatching it and even understanding you know why the emily blunt character is this poster child for that for that war and stuff like that of her going, I don't know if this is spoilers or anything, but uh, of what her character went through and you go, Oh fuck, that's why she is so good at what she does too. And like, and just seeing the pieces. And like you said of, of him reliving this day over and over again. But I think the way that the movie is structured is, is so fantastic because it jumps around in time uh, both obviously in the concept of the movie, but also from what you're seeing from the audience's perspective, right? And you don't really know how long we've gone without seeing Tom uh, Tom Cruise go over uh, uh, and over and over the same day, and like um, seeing him and how how much time passes, and it kind of gives you bits and pieces of the plot, and it, and you actually have to put it together in your own mind, which I think it trusts the audience to do that which you don't a lot of movies will spoon feed a lot of this shit and it does give you the big points of what you need but it it lets the audience go oh fuck okay he's relived this way more than we're even seeing and he's done this same day maybe hundreds if not thousands of times to get as good as he is and and how they kind of give you bits and pieces of the relationship he's building with emily blunt's character and and um i just think that I, i forgot at how 
you know, masterful that movie was kind of put together and, and did, does trust the audience to kind of, you know, it doesn't spoon feed you the entire thing, which I, I, I think is really, really cool. I miss Bill Paxton a lot too. Yeah, I think same, he has man. one of the best reaction scenes in the movie. It's like, what were you thinking? <laughs> yeah, it's it, uh, Bill. The Paxton only thing that sucks dude. about this movie, I know a lot of people do complain about the last act kind of falling into a conventional kind of you know action CGI fest, but yeah. um, the title. It should have been called "All You Need Is yeah. Kill" based on the graphic novel or the manga, which um, is a great and- name. Oh, it's so it's it's excellent, and like even now, like there's debate of whether or not it's called Edge of Tomorrow, or in in this episode's case, oh, yeah. Edging of Tomorrow, <laughs> um, or if it's called Live Die or Repeat. So it'll be interesting to see what the sequel does in terms of just even its branding, if it yeah. ever if we ever get there. I hope we do. Um, and yeah, it, I know that they did rebrand it when it came out on video to be Live Die Repeat, right? Um, colon it's they're kind of doing the harley quinn thing which they recently did right well speaking of harley quinn to make everything come for full circle um but yeah i I don't know i think that last act is still incredibly entertaining and i think even seeing them kind of you know slowly get through it and and i get what you're saying of when he quote unquote loses his power and it kind of turns into your more conventional conventional third act action movie but like i don't know i think the stakes are there and the movie uh, I mean, as much as you probably assumed that they were going to make it, I think there's still a sense of danger throughout that last act. And I think they set it up really well. Um, rewatched uh, two superhero movies, uh, classic Matt. Uh, rewatched Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is just as fantastic as uh, I remembered. Uh, I think that will be a movie I rewatch over and over and over and over and over again. I do truly believe it's probably the best superhero movie uh we've ever gotten one of the best animated movies um i've ever seen and uh it gets better and better with every watch um and we have some lord and miller uh news coming uh, news today so yeah uh and then i rewatched iron man so um which nevis had never seen uh which was crazy to me um so we're going to go, I, I mean, again, back on my bullshit, uh, going to be doing a MCU rewatch just because it's comfort food, really. And uh, and then talking with Nevis, she's only seen like the highlights um, of the MCU. So she's seen a lot of the more recent stuff with the Avengers movies and, and stuff like that. But we were watching Iron Man and I was surprised that um, uh, she didn't know that Jeff Bridges was in it as the villain and like certain things like that. And so it was kind of, it's going to be fun maybe watching it with her. And even though she kind of knows the, the end game uh, of it all, it'll be kind of fun to watch some of these movies with her that she's only seen these characters, whether it's in other movies, like she hasn't seen any of the captain America movies and stuff like that. So uh, I think it'll be kind of fun to, to watch this uh, and experience this with her. Cause I, I do really, really love that universe in those movies so experiencing that with her will be a, a blast and and we kind of did that earlier this year with the fast and furious movies as well so would you say that she's now an obadiah stain stan i lo- i love jeff bridges and i like and we started uh iron man 2 and i think iron man 2 kind of gets a bad rap and the, the more i watch that movie when I, the further removed i am from that time period and when that movie came out and seeing it as part of the bigger picture i i like it more and i like sam rockwell in that movie and um there obviously has its issues but i love uh mickey rourke and and but yeah i, lo- I love jeff bridges and y- you're 
especially where we are now in that universe, it's it will it's even more interesting seeing that they get fall into that kind of trap of okay, the villain needs to be a version of the hero, like the mirror. Uh, image of of the hero so you start to get that in the first one and then it just continues over and over and over again for the mcu movies but um i just love jeff bridges so i mean i would and i think he's got a great look in that movie the bald head and the beard is an excellent look and i think he should go back to it yeah no i mean jeff bridges is always fun to watch even when he's in a bad movie but um the other thing with that film i mean i i like the first iron man movie as well it's it's fun um but the thing I always also think about is how useless Phil Coulson has always been. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, but I do love I, – I just – and Nevis was saying this as we were watching, so it's interesting getting her perspective of she's just like, this doesn't feel like a Marvel movie. And I'm like, oh, well, it, I mean, it being the first one, I, I, I really do love Iron Man because it almost is split up into two parts and she – another good point halfway through is just like, wait, is this over? And I'm like, no, this is just the halfway point. Like when he, when he kind of escapes from um, captivity, it's, and uh, you don't really get Iron Man until, you know, the second hour of the movie. Um, and uh, I just really, the structure of that movie, I find like, I love that first act of him um, being captured and building the suit and, and kind of escaping and things like that. And, um, it's interesting seeing Terrence Howard there and then uh, uh, like it'll His be one fun. time roadie. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see uh, again um, these first few Marvel movies where they were kind of trying to find their way. Um, and I know I did this rewatch before I've done it basically every year. I kind of do it, but uh, recently. Hey, you like what you like and, and you know, having the chance to see it with Nevis, seeing it with someone who hasn't if she'll it, have that, to sit through some... the dark world now <laughs> oh god oh, i feel so bad for her but it'll add some insight that maybe you didn't see or or just a new perspective um and then also i mean like with iron man one and two the one thing that i do like about both of those movies is that they're shot by matthew libatique yeah and they look a lot nicer than what is to come because i mean the one thing i've always been very critical of uh a lot of the marvel movies is that they they look, they the look very televisual yeah. clean digital and, and cheap and i think that they have gotten better in the last couple of movies but they still have that kind of artificial like everything was shot on a sound stage and done in green screen and then we just you know augmentate the sequences yeah. in post um but the first two iron man movies they look they look nice. They look like they were shot, you know, on film and they look like they were, you know, they, they actually had interesting sets and set designs like that first sequence that you're talking about in Iron Man is I think the strongest part of that movie in sort of the origin story, the same way that Batman begins, like Batman begins that first half of him becoming Batman and leaving Gotham and figuring out who he is as a person is the most compelling aspect of that movie. Agreed. Um, and then finally, uh, I watched Peanut Butter Falcon, which I might hold my thoughts on because I would love for you to watch it, Eric, because I'd be curious to get your thoughts because I, I really, really enjoyed it like quite a bit. Um, I heard good things last year. Um, I remember talking about it right before TIFF, I think talking with our friend Dave Voigt and some people at the uh, that TIFF uh, Canadian party we went to or where they reveal the Canadian films. Um, 
and talking with some people about it then. And I, I, it was on sale for like $10 on, on iTunes. So I, uh, I randomly picked it up. I had no idea it involved, you know, a young man who wanted to become, uh, who, uh, has down syndrome, who wants, who escapes a old folks home, where, which he was put into. And he meets up with, uh, the Shia LaBeouf character who, and wants to go to this wrestling school, this professional wrestling school. Um, and I, I don't know. I really, really enjoyed it, but I'm going to kind of hold off and maybe we can have a conversation about it if you watch it in the next, you know, a week or a week or two. But um, pleasantly surprised. I really liked it. Uh, Dakota Johnson um, uh, has a, a role in the film, a, a supporting role as well. Uh, Bruce Dern uh, has a small role. He's great. I love seeing him pop up. Um, I think it's Thomas Jane. Is it Thomas Jane? Yeah. Is it uh, John Berthall? John Bernthal's in there. I, I was surprised at how many people. They're all very small roles. Uh, sorry, not. Uh, it's Thomas Hayden Church who plays uh, the professional wrestler, not Tom Jane. I get them mixed up sometimes. <laughs> um, uh, They're both named Tom. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, really great cast. Mick Foley, Jake the Snake Roberts is in there, and like, um, I didn't realize it had such a like a professional wrestling angle to it, and it, I just thought it was incredibly charming. Um, and I think Shia LaBeouf is, is actually great sometimes. And, um, when it seems like he, he's doing these smaller movies that he, he maybe, Oh, John Hawks is there kind of playing like the, the villain. And, um, it's just, I don't know. I, it's a movie that you've probably seen a bunch of times. Um, uh, you know, that indie road movie to like, uh, hitchhikers almost kind of traveling across, you know, the U S kind of thing, but I just found it incredibly charming and, uh, really enjoyed basically every, every aspect of it. So I'd be curious to see what you think. And maybe we can talk a little bit more, um, when you watch it. Yeah, I'll give it a watch. It was one of those movies that kind of fell, uh, in that period of, of getting ready for TIFF TIFF where, yeah. And it kind of just got lost through the cracks, but yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, I'm curious to, to check it out. I, I actually do, like Shia LaBeouf, the more strange he gets and the more yeah. eccentric he becomes. But he also seems to kind of now be sort of reinventing himself and sort of how he's seen as an actor and picking roles that are kind of interesting. I mean, it will be fascinating to watch him work with uh, Olivia Wilde uh, and Florence Pugh. And I think actually uh, Dakota Johnson was cast oh, yeah. uh, in the movie as well. So And they have a good uh, chemistry in this. Like I... I, I really, really liked this, man. Like, uh, I was surprised. Um, no, I got great reviews, so I wasn't super surprised. But, um, yeah, I I think you should check it out for sure. And I agree with you. Yeah, because it played at South by Southwest last year, too. Yeah. So. And it's not necessarily, like, a weird role for him. Like, he's playing it pretty straight, and it's a, it's a character I can easily see him doing. But seeing this and Honey Boy, even though we were a little bit mixed on that, um, I haven't gone back to watch American Honey yet just because it was so long. <laughs> um, oh, God. And then, uh, I mean, even Nymphomaniac being a, a, a very interesting choice. Um, I like, I'm, yeah, he's in the tax collector that's coming out of the David Ayer movie. Oh, the David Ayer yeah. movie, yeah. Yeah, so that, um, that'll be interesting. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, I really like this. So, yeah, you should check it out. Uh, what have you been watching? 
Well, I'll I'll quickly go through uh, the stuff that I've covered for Rogers, just because you can go to RogersTV.com slash CinemaScene and, and shameless plug, my, baby. Uh, my my voiceover. I'm a shameless self promoter, just like Kevin Smith is. Um, so Castle in the Ground, which I was pleasantly surprised with uh, Joey Klein's uh, somber opioid crisis drama, which isn't really a lecture or PSA about sort of the opioid, opioid crisis, more as a sort of dark character study that never kind of goes to that caricature point where I think it could have easily gone. And it doesn't have that sort of stink of like, we have to be a Canadian movie. Like we have to make sure that this is quote unquote Canadian and just shooting it in sort of, it's not uh four by three. Is it kind of that Jack, aspect. that Jackie aspect ratio? Yeah. 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 And I think that was actually kind of interesting as well. I, I think it's one of those movies that's filled with really strong performances overall. I think Alex Wolf, who, um was in hereditary is is fantastic i really like him and i like imogene poots a lot nev campbell full circle there you go (laughs) yeah 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 and i mean her role is maybe the most kind of borderline caricature but um overall i was i was pleasantly surprised with the movie and i think joey klein is a filmmaker to watch i know he's done another film with tom cullen who also uh, has a small supporting role in this and uh, tatiana mislani uh called the other half um so he, he'll be interesting to see in the next couple of years where he ends up but it's it was it was a pleasant surprise um i watched uh the roads not taken which i actually watched after capone and they're kind of similar in that you have uh, stories or narratives that are structured around characters that are losing their ability to kind of stay in the real world and, and aren't as lucid as they once were. And Bart M's character suffering from either dementia or Alzheimer's, even though it's not specific. It's not a really good movie. Sally Potter has been one of these filmmakers in the last couple of years that she's been making movies between this and the party where it's either very high concept or the idea really clinches on sort of like, the fractured storytelling. So you go into Javier Bardem's mind. He plays a writer who is basically reliving his uh, past relationships and regrets in fragmented fashion. And when it gets to like him currently in New York, living in this kind of shitty small apartment with Elle Fanning as his daughter, sort of taking him to the dentist and to uh, go for an eye exam. Like that stuff is basically Potter just spouting out the social commentary of today where, you know, people uh, will interact with Javier Bardem's character. And if he's incoherent or does something that isn't considered you know, uh, normal, they'll call him dirty, uh, racial slurs that are derivative of, uh, Mexican culture. And it's just like, okay, I, I get what you're doing with this, but it's just, there's no subtlety or, and especially for somebody that is, is a Brit who is speaking about, it kind of almost feels like it's coming out of like a place of where like, well, you don't really know what's going on with all of this. And you're, you're an outsider on this perspective yourself and also, you know, one to talk. Um, it's okay. I didn't really yeah. think it was that 
good of a movie. I think Bardem and Elle Fanning are really good. Laura Linney has one scene that, and she's excellent, but the movie itself is just kind of a, a failed experiment. Um, I watched the painter and the thief, which is the latest documentary from neon, which is a really fascinating movie, um, about a painter, um, a Norwegian painter, or she's originally from uh, Chechnya, um, and how she comes to Norway and two of her paintings are stolen and the thief, she kind of creates an unlikely friendship with, and over time, you get to see both sides of their story. And it does this interesting narrative sort of device where it'll show you the one side of the story from the painter's point of view and then the other side from um, the thief who is also, uh, you know, trying to kick uh, drug addiction, has been in jail multiple times and sort of... It, you know, we'll go from his point of view to hers, but do, do it in like this interesting timeline of like, you know, six months from his point of view, six months from her point of view and go back and forth. And I think it's an interesting critique on art as well. And sort of like, just because you have an exhibit somewhere doesn't mean that you're going to become wealthy. And like, you see that, you know, those paintings that this guy stole were her chance of making money. And because they're taken and she doesn't know where they ended up, that she's struggling to pay the rent, even though she has a supportive spouse, like these things all play a, a factor in sort of this person's life. And I really think that this person, she is not only a great artist, but she actually would make a really fantastic interviewer um, because she's the one that approaches this guy to begin with and asks him at the court hearing when he's arrested, if I could talk to you for a bit, if, if we could sit down and, and, and talk and she ends up doing sketching drawings of him. And I think her relationship or her sort of conversation and sort of how she asks him about what happened with the painting is interesting, but she knows how far to sort of, prod him without making him agitated and also still be inquisitive and curious um she asks all the right questions and i thought it was 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 fascinating to watch um it's not a, it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination but it's one that i think any fan of the art world would be interested in checking out and i would definitely I recommend tell, that. Nevis, tell nevis to watch it yeah, and um, from there I saw the supposedly the final trip movie with uh, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, um, which takes place in Greece, although it starts in Turkey uh, and sort of mimics the Odyssey. And we get uh, these two characters sort of looking back instead of just ribbing each other. I mean, there's still plenty of uh, impersonations and ribbing on one another as they have done in the other three movies. But here there's more of a melancholy aspect of looking back at your life and sort of contemplating the end. And I think that that's kind of interesting, even if it's a little bit more of a downer, but this feels like a, a full conclusion where the trip to Spain had this kind of abrupt ending that felt a little bit sort of like there was something left. And I think Michael Winterbottom and Bryden and Steve Coogan have really come into their own. They're all comfortable with each other, but they're still able to find sort of a candor and sort of a fun sort of mischievous sort of back and forth and barbs with each other. Um, that if you like those guys and you like their kind of 
impersonations or their sense of humor, then you will definitely want to check that out. Um, after that, I watched uh, some of the uh, uh, last drive-in movies over the last couple of weeks. I've talked about a few of these films before, so I really won't go into too much detail, but I uh, watched Brain Damage, uh, Deep Red, which is uh, from Dario Argento, which is, I think, my second favorite of his uh, after Suspiria, uh, One Cut of the Dead, which I've talked about before on the show, which I think is a great uh, Japanese horror comedy and meta sort of uh, experience that I don't want to ruin because I think, Matt, you would really, really like it. It's on uh, Shudder right now, and it's actually getting a Blu-ray release in uh, June. And then Troma's War as well, where uh, Joe Bob Briggs interviewed uh, uh Lloyd Kaufman and Lloyd Kaufman's always interesting to hear but I also quickly wanted to mention there is a, a really great article on uh, medium.com by uh, Johnny Donaldson that actually kind of looks at the gatekeepers of horror and sort of talks about Joe Bob Briggs the personality and the actor playing him John Bloom um, and sort of tries to separate you know the satirical aspect from the real person and some of the things that that John Bloom or Joe Bob Briggs has said in the past have been extremely problematic, um, especially uh, with the transgender community. Um, and it's a really thoughtful read. And it's one that's important to read that goes really deep into, you know, Joe Bob Briggs status in the horror community, but also looking at the idea of what's satire and what isn't satire and whether it's going too far or not. And I think that this uh, article lays that out really wonderfully and people should definitely uh, give it a shot. Again, John Bloom has been a guy that's never been, you know, shy when it comes to controversy. There is a whole time where he was working for the Dallas uh, newspaper and he got into some hot water there. So I'm very aware of that. And I think that that's important to kind of, you know, contextualize these things and, and be aware that, you know, like you can like a person for a certain thing, but it doesn't necessarily make them sort of uh, immune from controversy or excuse them uh, from certain things if they have said something that, you know, is offensive generally offensive like not not something that's like you know ignorant or innocent that could be corrected through an apology but like something that actually is hurtful and mean-spirited and could cause um uh violence and i think that this article uh really gets into that quite well and articulates that in a a really thoughtful manner um so i would recommend reading that on uh, medium.com uh and then lastly i uh rewatched uh the gift um which originally was called gordo uh directed by joel edgerton which i had been wanting to watch since uh the outsider series the stephen king series because right. i think the gift for me maybe with the exception of Teen Wolf 2 and Arrested Development is Jason Bateman's best performance. He is such a fucking <laughs> asshole. In yeah. his, uh, I remember movie. really liking and it's it. One, it's one of the few Blumhouse productions that a lot of people don't talk about being like kind of like the top tier. And I think it's because it's not, you know, your quintessential horror movie. Like it's not a slasher flick. 
it's not a supernatural thriller like it has this weird kind of middle ground that is kind of more almost like a european art house movie in the way that like a michael haneke movie would be where there are unsettling elements but it's more about you know human nature and whether or not people can change and you know the 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 long-term effects bullying has on a personality or a person or the person being the perpetrator. Um, I, I think both Joel Edgerton as uh, Gordo uh, or Gordon and Rebecca Hall are also very good, but I, there's just something about Jason Bateman playing an asshole that is so believable. Uh, and then I rewatched the girl with all the gifts, which I think is probably one of the better zombie movies in the last 10 years or so. Right. I haven't seen it since if, um, which is it's a fun film and it's kind of in the vein of like 28 days later than it is kind of like your uh traditional um brain eating flesh eating zombie movie yeah i remember wanting to watch it and i just never got around to it but i um i didn't even realize that uh the gift was blumhouse because i guess that was before they were partnered with universal right because that was stx yeah um uh yeah, I forgot about that. But yeah, I haven't seen that since theaters and I remember really enjoying it, but um uh maybe I'll go back and rewatch that as well. Um anything else? No, it's it, it was uh, and also just like to compare the gift to uh Nathan for you, uh, <laughs> a very uncomfortable cringe-worthy uh yeah. watch in the best possible way because it wants to evoke that yes. feeling that's exactly what nathan for you does is like it's so hard to watch it but it's very very good at that it's amazing that he got his start on this hour has 22 yeah minutes. i had no idea that's got to be the best thing to no offense to this hour has 22 minutes but or rick mercer yeah <laughs> no thank you uh all right moving on to staying at home uh i'll jump in with um digital first since you just went over what you were watching um sure this is a uh if you guys are again sorry we're in canada we're giving you kind of canadian release dates and canadian deals uh some of these movies might also be on sale on the american store but um here's a giant list of movies in 4k that are under $10 on Apple movies right now. So a lot of these have Dolby vision, Dolby Atmos. Um, Eric, you'll appreciate this. I moved my sound bar to um, below my TV now. So it actually sounds way better. Cause before I had it on top of my, um, you know, TV unit thing. And I just, something was off about it and it's a little bit janky now. Cause I need a, uh, a new TV stand and things like that. So it doesn't like fit completely properly, but it sounds so much better now. Cause like the, I have these top speakers cause it's a Dolby Atmos soundbar. And I feel like because it was so high up above our, our, my head, I just wasn't getting the full kind of capabilities of it. So I feel like it does sound better now. Um, you anyways, love it below the rim. Uh, <laughs> 69. Um, here are a list of 4k movies, Apple movies under $10. Most of them have either HDR or, or Dolby vision and a lot have Dolby Atmos. Uh, beautiful day in the neighborhood, top gun, Spider-Man far from home, Spider-Man into the spider verse. Once, a to uh, once upon a time in Hollywood hustlers, heat days of thunder, the revenant kick-ass war of the worlds, ET predator, die hard <coughs> independence day. <coughs> oh my God. The deals are so good, I can't breathe properly. 
uh, Lego Batman movie, Lego movie two, Lego Ninjago, uh, Prometheus, 2001, a space odyssey, starship troopers, uh, the evil dead apocalypse. Now all of the hunger games, movies, teen Titans go blade runner, gremlins and Brightburn. Um, all of those movies are like nine ninety nine or under on uh, Apple movies right now uh, in 4K. In so, Canada. In Canada. So, again, yeah. some great deals, though. Um, it's it's good that, that iTunes is, is doing this right now because, I mean, obviously people have to stay home. But at least, you know, titles like these are a nice kind of variety of, of the bigger studio films and sort of the more kind of uh, classic, I guess, sort of eighties iconography. So, yeah. Yeah. It looks like there's like a Sony sale on right now uh, after I'm like listing these out and there's like a Tom Cruise sale because they put a bunch of his movies on 4k, um, which is one of my picks. Um, yeah. So yeah, I guess good segue. Yes. So we're going to be, uh, Playing with the boys with Top Gun in uh, 4K, uh, which is one of three films that Paramount has released uh, this week. The other two being Days of uh, Thunder, the Tony Scott movie, and Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds. I actually really want to revisit Days of Thunder because it has been a Same. really long time since I've watched that. And Same. I just like Tony Scott. So um, I just remember, do you remember the ride at, at, at Canada's Wonderland? They Top Gun or, or Days of Thunder? Well, both. Top Gun was. I remember Top Gun, but Days of Thunder was. You know where they had the theater with the moving seats, where they had a James Bond ride with Pierce Brosnan at one point, I think. Um, right, which was all first person, and that was really cool. But before that, they had a Days of Thunder ride in there. But yeah, the Top Gun ride is is infamous from Paramount Canada's Wonderland before it got rebranded. Now is it just called? It's just called Canada's Wonderland, right? Yeah, because they removed the. Paramount I haven't been there branding. for ages. I I go every um, I'm just, usually once a year, but it's not great anymore. Yeah, um, I'm just looking something up as uh, as I go through this. But um, I, another thing that I wanted to recommend that uh, well, two things that uh, both uh, Kino Lorber and uh, Shout Factory were very kind uh, to send to me, especially. Uh, you know, right now where, you know, priority mail is, it means different things. And, and that is obviously, you know, essential comes first. Um, but I showed you this already, Matt, but yeah, the, the Pink uh, Panther collection, uh, the Pink Panther collection, uh, you have six discs on Blu-ray, uh, the cartoon series. So I'm excited to uh, dig into this. I keep putting it off, but I think I'm going to try to watch maybe a couple episodes over the weekend, but it goes from um, just looking at the back here now, um, 1964 up until 1980 so uh this series lasted a a good while and i remember this it it came on again in syndication in the early 90s um so i'm curious to have a nostalgic uh, uh flashback with that one and then the other uh uh, thing that I have to recommend that Shout Factory sent to me that Pink Panther is available now. And so is uh, uh, this. And I'm actually excited to kind of go back because I kind of fell off it a little bit is uh, The Good Place. Oh, OK. Which cool. is now available on uh, Blu-ray, which I'll show Matt. But uh, the audiences at home cannot see. There it is. Is it the complete series? Oh, nice. It's the complete series. Yeah. And so Shout Factory released that. It's a nine uh, Blu-ray set. That's interesting um, that Shout's putting it out. So that's just NBC yeah, or whoever partnering with them or? 
Yeah, it will, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that because usually the the company that releases the NBC stuff after the series is finished has been Mill Creek. So they released uh, 30 Rock recently, the complete series, and I'm sure they'll release Brooklyn Nine-Nine once it's, it's finished. Um, the other two shows that haven't been released yet are Parks and Rec and uh, The Office, even though uh individual sets of the office have been released yeah. on blu-ray but the first couple of seasons are only on uh dvd and parks and rec um, is all just dvd like i remember being really yeah, bummed about ugh. that yeah it's gross yeah <laughs> Um, but the other thing about the good place is, uh, I, I've seen the first two seasons and I Same. really like them and it's nothing against the quality. It's just like, I kind of fall off with TV Same. after a while. Yeah. Um, but I am excited to go back to it, but there, the, there's something bittersweet about this as well is, and I didn't realize this. I mean, I should have, because she was such a, a, a prolific, uh, filmmaker is that Lynn Shelton, yes. uh, directed an episode, uh, called what's my motivation, uh, in season one. So, um, you know, if you want to check out some of, uh, Lynn Shelton's, uh, work in television, I mean, you just throw a dart on a popular TV show and chances and are she's, she's worked, she's, on, she's it, worked yeah. on it. I mean, you know, everything from the, uh, new girl to more recently with uh little master fires of none and master of none yeah. she did a couple episodes i remember seeing her name pop up yeah uh we'll be we'll, well she did the one with the uh the john carpenter school yeah where you see the the women's point of view and the male and the point of view yeah. uh going home from the bar and that sequence says so it's much is yeah. done with such care as a as a director yeah um yeah a few um uh, we'll get into it in the news, but yeah, the, some terrible, terrible news. Um, yeah, good place going, jumping back onto that. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you where um, I love uh, Michael Schur and, and Greg Daniels, the guys who, who did the office and then they split up and kind of done different shows. And I think we kind of talked about this when we talked about Brooklyn nine, nine and the parks and rec reunion that happened. Um, I don't know if I ever talked about that. I think I did. Yeah, I did. Um, but a good place was another one where I really enjoyed those first two seasons, but there was something I just, I, for some reason never went back to them. So now that the show has finished and I haven't spoiled anything or, or, uh, I would love to go back and rewatch those, uh, or, or just watch that the final it's four seasons total, correct? For parks and rec? No, for good place. A uh, good place. Let me look right now. I think it's four. Yeah. Yeah, Parks and Rec, I've seen the whole thing. I love it. Um, But yeah, Good Place I fell off of, and I would love to finish that. I think they might be on Netflix here in Canada, but I'm not 100% sure. It is. Um, It is. And I loved your comparison of it when when you were first getting into it. You said it's basically like Lost if it was a comedy. Yeah, which is 100% true. Where I feel like it's more plot-focused than um maybe their other like workplace comedies like parks and rec in the office and and brooklyn 99 but i liked it because of that but then that was also another reason because i think me and you are notoriously awful for plot driven shows like we're okay with like yeah. purely kind of fluff comedy episodic. stuff yeah episodic stuff because we can just pop it on and watch it and 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 get through it but like plot centric stuff or stuff that involves a bit more plot uh, uh takes us a while to you know get into it so um good place i do really want to go back and watch so that's a, a good thing good choice this week did one of those uh those creators work on upload i keep hearing yeah that they did yeah worth checking out yes so i think upload seems pretty similar to good place um I, yeah. I just from the concept that I've seen, but it's one of them. I always get mixed up of like 
which one is Greg Daniels, which one is Michael Schur, or if it's someone else who worked on one of those shows. Uh, but upload, or the Black Mirror episode. Yeah, upload Same Juniper. Yeah, upload is on uh, Amazon Prime right now, and I have heard good things. And then um, we have Space Force, which is coming soon. I'm pretty sure on Netflix. So uh, the Steve Carell uh, show which we talked about the trailer a couple weeks ago. Uh, speaking of trailers, let's move in to talking trailers. Um, there's actually quite a few things over the last, you know, couple weeks. Um, the biggest being, um, I would say the Spike Lee Defy Bloods trailer. I don't know if we wanted to start there, Eric, but. Um, Hell yeah. Yeah. The Spike Lee announced on Twitter that, um, Defy Bloods was is going to be dropping on Netflix on June the twelfth. We got a poster a few days later, and then this past, you know, um, I think on Monday or or Sunday or Monday, um, was it yesterday? Yeah, it was yesterday, right? Yeah, it was yesterday. Yeah, uh, Monday. Uh, we got the trailer. That has for, no meaning anymore. Yeah, I don't know. I went back to work today because I was off last week, and I just, uh, yeah, time doesn't really have a meaning. Uh, but yeah, anyways, the trailer for Defy Bloods dropped. Um, and it looks fucking rad. I think this looks awesome. Yeah, I'm in total agreement. It, it looks like, you know, a, a Spike Lee movie through and through, even down to the trailer, which is, you know, taking archival footage of, you know, music playing, but also sort of recontextualizing things like Apocalypse Now and sort of Vietnam, you know, in the rearview mirror of America being almost commercialized. Yeah, in, in the shot of McDonald's, the Budweiser logo, that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And then on top of that, you have this almost like, you know, treasure of the Sierra Madre-esque storyline um, of a group of soldiers going back to find to the Vietnam, buried treasure, yeah. Buried treasure, which is also like that Simpsons episode where Grandpa Simpson goes back to find the paintings. Yeah. Uh, it, when him and Mr. Burns are, are the last We're two in, of yeah. their uh, battalion. Um, so maybe Spike Lee took some uh, inspiration from the Simpsons, but I, I, I always like, I've always said this about Spike Lee, even a failure and Spike Lee has made some movies that aren't good, but I will always be interested to watch his stuff because he's such an interesting filmmaker and he's always, you know, still willing to experiment. And when you get to a certain age, you know, you kind of find your routine or style. And he definitely has his style and his, you know, trademark uh, camera works and images and things like that, that set him apart from other filmmakers. But I always feel like he is willing to take risks that not even, you know, someone like Soderbergh will, will do. And it'll be interesting to see this movie. And, and I'm, I'm a little nervous just because I, I remember having the same excitement with uh, Miracle at St. Anna and then seeing that movie and, kind of being disappointed with it but maybe this will be a stronger film just because of the psychedelics alone and i think spike lee is really good with you know 1960s 70s you know trip out sequences and things like that and even going into sort of the present day stuff and having you know actors he's worked with before like delroy lindo and then new actors coming aboard like jonathan majors yeah. who i think is a major talent um 
and and just like the 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 aspect ratio and the graininess yep. of loved it, the, dude. The you knew Vietnam I was gonna love that. Stuff. You knew I yeah. was gonna love that. That aspect ratio change with you get the four by three kind of grainy film uh, look of the of the Vietnam stuff, and then you get the modern widescreen stuff for the present day thing. And you brought up like, yeah, the first things I notice is like, yeah, these guys going back to Vietnam and the and how it's kind of it just would be wild to them, right. Of being back in this place where they were in this war, where they they're looking for this buried treasure that they buried when they were in the war that they found. And, and the commercialization, not even commercialization, but maybe, I don't know, just, it, it becomes it, it, like seeing that McDonald's there or that, it, that club sequence with the apocalypse now logo and, and the Budweiser logo right under it. And, and just like, that was the stuff that stuck out. And like you said, the psychedelic nature of the, of the whole thing with the, um, the live music and the, and the, I don't know. I just, everything about this, uh, I totally fucked with. And I was just like, man, I, this jumped <laughs> to, uh, one of my most anticipated films of the year. I think the cast is fantastic. You mentioned Jonathan majors. Um, I just, I I can't wait to see kind of that juxtaposition between you know the present day stuff and the stuff the the Vietnam stuff and like it's one of my favorite things that Wes Anderson did in Grand Budapest Hotel and I think it's maybe it's been done a lot I, but I don't know I love matching you know time periods with and having a thematic device of playing with you know filmmaking devices and lenses and styles that kind of match the era that you're you're messing with and i think that's really interesting and i think spike lee can uh uh, especially in something like this can can knock it out of the park so um and it's, it's cool like netflix is is giving filmmakers like him the opportunity to maybe experiment a little bit more and that's why i have maybe a little bit more faith not that netflix films have a great track record um but when they've partnered with tours, which is a word that I don't usually love using, but um, when they partner with these guys, these big filmmakers, these big names, and they kind of give them the freedom and the budget to kind of do what they want, um, it's it's worked. And I think you get passion projects from people and, and they're given the, the right amount of money that they probably wouldn't have gotten maybe at another studio and the freedom that they might not have gotten at another studio. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing, but I mean, if you look at, again, movies that I didn't personally really love, but if you look at The Irishman um, and um, Roma and things like that, when they partnered with these big filmmakers and given them a budget and the freedom that they wouldn't have gotten in other places, it's it's usually turned out pretty well, even if I didn't really connect with those movies um so yeah i don't know i'm super super jazzed about this i'm I'm really really excited i mean um spike lee's one of those guys that like i again i'm kind of with you where it's like he's not everything is great but uh, i'm always i will be first in line to see any movie that um that he makes and um even like again i like that if he takes some risks and maybe if it doesn't always work but I think he's coming off Black Klansman, which is fantastic. Um, I even like his old boy remake. So, I mean, who am am I to say anything? I think both me and you kind of defended that remake a little bit. 
Um, yeah, I mean, again, like, look at how he played with the cinematography shot yes, by Sean Bobbitt, yeah. where, like, the beginning was shot on film, and then when we got into the, the present day, it was digital. So he's always trying to do something new. I mean, that film was taken away from him. But, I mean, that's the other thing that I find very fascinating about uh, Defy Bloods and reading the Entertainment Weekly article is that he – went to start shooting this right after he won the uh, best adapted screenplay Oscar with the same writers of black Klansmen. So I think Spike Lee is in this like creative mindset right now where it's like, he is just on fire and to see him go from a movie that I think kind of re-energized him a little bit with black Klansmen. Now to this, it'll be really interesting to see what kind of fury he brings uh, to this movie. A thousand percent agree. Um, moving on to, I guess, the second high-profile um, trailer drop of the last couple of weeks. We got um, an announcement that and a trailer drop for uh, The King of Staten Island, the Judd Apatow film, also being released on June 12th on streaming. Um, Defy Bloods will be available on Netflix, so if you have a Netflix subscription, you can watch that. King of Staten Island will be a premium VOD film. Uh, this is the Judd Apatow film. This sort of, um, it's not a, a, a it's biopic. It's semi-autobiographical. Yeah, yeah, of, of yeah. Pete Davidson and his life um, uh, growing up in Staten Island. And um, I don't know. I, I I We make fun of Judd Apatow a little bit. I think he's a, a good filmmaker. And I, I actually genuinely do enjoy the majority of his filmography. And I we were talking with our friend Ben Shane about this. Too, he's uh, Ben's a, a bit younger than us, and um, he's just kind of getting started in this industry. And we were kind of laughing of like um, talking about you know Judd Apatow was huge in the in the two thousands, producing basically every big comedy. And it feels weird talking about like that was a long time ago, but it was almost twenty years ago. Um, and then his filmography of being like, I think the guy's really talented and he's really funny. And I think he he is one of the people that can mix drama and comedy really, really well. It's just he has a tendency to make his movies way too, way too, way too long. Um, so seeing that King of Staten Island is over two hours and 20 minutes or something or two hours and 15 minutes um, uh, scares me a little bit. That being said, I watched this trailer and I really, really dug it. I'm not the biggest Pete Davidson fan. I remember when he was brought on to SNL and I kind of, I kind of dug his vibe. He felt different from the rest of the cast. And, um, and then it kind of, his shtick wore thin on me and then everything that's gone on with him over the last, you know, five or so years. Um, but I don't know, this trailer, it had that Judd Apatow charm for me where it looks genuinely very, very funny, but, uh, very sweet as well. And, um, I don't know, it just really kind of landed with me. I love the supporting cast. You have, uh, uh, Marissa Tomei, uh, Steve Buscemi, um, a, a lot more people. Um, what's Bill Burr Bill with Burr, a mustache. Man. Bill Burr looking great. Um, yeah. So like, I don't know. I, I, this trailer really won me over. I went in kind of going like, oh, God, a, a Pete Davidson biopic. I don't need that shit. Um, but it right. looks it looks charming. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm into it. To me, I go he, hear me out on this one. I will. Pete Davidson is the Dennis Rodman of SNL. Fair. That's always fair. partying, dating women, <laughs> partying until 9 a.m., has some internal you know issues that he's kind of dealing with he's uh flamboyant over the top looks stoned all the time 
<laughs> was stoned all the time uh, for a while. Yeah. But yeah, but I think I'm in the same kind of headspace as you. I mean, Pete Davidson to me, I, I, I don't have a feeling about him one way or another. I'm just kind of neutral. Cause like even the more recent SNL that I've watched with him in it, he's, he's barely there to begin with. And um, I, I mean, like the only thing I really know about him in terms of like personality wise is that he's a, a Safdie brothers fanboy, which is cool, but it almost feels like he's begging them to write something for him. Um, but I, I think this could be a good movie in the same way that like, I enjoyed Trainwreck with Amy Schumer. And I yeah. think, you know, Judd right now is really shepherding, you know, comedic talent by writing, um, you know, stories around a certain entertainer or, or comedian or, or personality. Um, but it will be interesting to see if Pete Davidson can hold his own dramatically, because I think that's the one thing that Amy Schumer actually was able to do in Trainwreck, where she could handle both the comedy and, you know, the, the more sincere sort of emotional moments where Pete Davidson, like there's one moment in the trailer at the end where he's in the car and he's like closing his eyes and he's having a moment and it just kind of looks like he's quote unquote acting. Right. Um, fair. But other than that, I mean, like, I think it, it looks good. And I, yeah, again, like I think Apatow is a really, um, solid comedy filmmaker and producer and you know when he's on fire he can work and he's a good you know he 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 knows talent and it's just yeah he's his own worst enemy when it comes to you know editing and sort of cutting things down and shaping a movie not based on you know showing comedy as as to be considered in the same league as drama but just to know when the bit is done and to move on and he sometimes doesn't know when to cut. And I think that's going to be his biggest problem. Agreed. It's been his biggest problem his entire career. Um, yeah. Trainwreck, I think is a movie that we really disagreed on. I'd be curious to maybe leading up to uh, King of Staten Island. I, I might, I would, I would love to revisit and see a 40 year old virgin and knocked up hold up and even funny people. Cause I remember really, really enjoying that movie. Um, no interest it, though in this is 40 i like that's the no one yeah like, i don't know if i really want to rewatch that now I, again because of the length 133 minutes yeah. like uh i feel like there's a good movie in this is 40 if it's like an hour and 40 minutes like just commit to the 40 right. um i don't know like i and again funny people being the one that is like i think the longest out of the bunch uh at almost two and a half hours and i i remember enjoying it and then 40 year old virgin and knocked up being, you know, very, very important in the early to late two thousands. Um, and then him producing things. Well, like, he was great at making the, the man child movies with, you know, heart, Yes, you know, the raunchy comedies that also were, you know, um, movies that you could relate to. Yep. And I mean, obviously comedy changes every so often and i mean it'll yeah it would be interesting to see the 40 year old virgin again and knocked up in the guise of like you know this what's going on socially and politically and if the comedy has dated mm -hmm. in in certain ways uh moving on to let's talk about the unhinged trailer so the movie that's going oh, to God. you know uh save save cinema. the industry yeah uh coming out canada day uh 
supposedly going to be the first movie to, you know, be kickstart people going back to the movies. Good luck. Um, not going to happen. This is a VOD movie through and through um, from an unknown. Is it a new studio? I've never heard of these people. Yeah, Solstice yeah. Uh, Pictures. Yeah, it's a, it's a newer company. And in Canada, it's being handled through VVS Films. Yeah, God bless them. Um, yeah, Unhinged. Uh, it's a road rage thriller um, starring uh, uh, Russell Crowe. Uh, and it looks ridiculous. I'm not against this type of movie. And I think it actually could be a fun watch in the sense of like somewhere between Steven Spielberg's duel and right. uh, Joyride. Yeah. Like there's like, there is this subgenre of, of or even road rage road thrillers games where like yeah. thrillers where, you know, you have like a, a sort of a, a lead that's maladjusted and, you know, is, is, sort of ticked off by something and and goes after somebody and it kind of looks like it could be a fun ride but i don't think that this movie should be the film to bring everybody back to the theater and i don't think it's a movie that actually probably would benefit from a theatrical release i think it would be a fine vod release yeah if they would have partnered with like a netflix or something like that i think you probably could have marketed that movie to be what you're saying like a fun ridiculous you know horror movie thriller whatever you want to call it but uh, i don't know this i guess i just had a sour taste in my mouth for them coming out and being like we're gonna be the first movie to kickstart people going back i'm like no one's gonna see your fucking movie even if we were like even if this pandemic never happened this movie would make no money um you know what it would it would be good if they remarketed the film and made it a movie it's like only playing at drive-ins i think that could be cool See, and that's a gimmick I can maybe get behind where you could be like, all right, we're doing this, you know, road rage thriller that can only be seen at a drive-in or it's VOD if you don't want to go see it at a theater. But yeah, I don't know. This trailer did nothing really for me. I just thought it looked bad. It looked ridiculous, but um, there was nothing there where I'm like, oh, you know, this even looks fun to the point where I want to see it. I don't know. Maybe I just had a, I was kind of rolling my eyes at them saying that they'll be the first movie back in theaters and i'm like fuck off like i don't know no one's going to to the movies in early as much as i want to i was talking about this with nevis today of like uh she sent me an article with like a company doing polls of like okay uh would you go back if you're allowed to go back to the movies are you do you plan on going and like 70 percent of people were like no and then like there was another one being like well what happens if we implemented like strict social distancing policies and it was like still the majority of people were like uh no i don't think i i will for the time being and i i talked about with her too of like i don't know your perspective eric we're kind of going off track but um and we're you know we're like two hours into this who cares we've been recording for three and a half hours already um yeah this is episode 69 baby let's go go hard or go home you know um so or both go hard and go home um do you think how long is it me and you go to the movies multiple times a week probably if at the lower end what usually alone because we're losers do you think you'll Will you go back right away or how long will it take you to go back and, or will you strategically, like you said, go to, you know, weeknight at 10 PM movie. So, you know, it's going to be empty or 
will you only go to press screenings if the studios reach out to us and say, hey, we're only inviting press. So there's only going to be, you know, how many press do we usually see at these things? 30, 30 people, 50 people, maybe at most. At the most. I mean, Um, that's, yeah. I mean, usually it's about like 10 that are... 10 for every every yes. movie right so the regulars are between 10 and 20 people on a very busy thing you get you know the disney stuff gets way busier but um maybe with that i was saying to nevis like if they eventually go okay we'll bring press screenings back um just make sure you know unless you're comfortable like if me and you wanted to sit beside each other sure but give people space so don't just sit close to other people and you know you'll have space i don't know if that's maybe something that would convince me to go watch things in a theater but then we might get to a point now where studios are comfortable sending screeners out because that's what they've had to kind of do over the last uh they might realize they don't need to rent these theaters even for press or anything like that but depending on if any of this stuff leaks or how early they send people but i don't know what your thoughts were of like how quickly do you think you'll go back um, that's a great question. And it's one I have been thinking a, a lot about, especially because, you know, the tenant release yeah. date is coming. And I mean, as of, as we're talking about this, I, I mean, we don't know what, what will happen when this will probably be tomorrow uh, recording. <laughs> yeah. This recording comes up, but you never know. Things change so quickly now, um, that, you know, if you say or do something that, you know, a release date changes or scheduling changes, but as this, at, at this moment, as we record, Tenet is still supposed to come out on July 17th. And I really do want to see that movie in a theater. Like I'm sure you do, uh, as, as well, Matt. Yeah. But I do worry about my health and just that, you know, there are people in my life that are more susceptible right. to same, uh, the coronavirus. that if I were to go to, you know, the Warner brothers screening room, which is quite small, even if they implemented social distancing there, um, you know, would that be enough? And I don't know if I could live with infecting somebody or getting somebody sick um, that's close to me you know, to, to see to a movie, justify yeah. going to a movie. Yeah. And I think the only time I would truly feel safe is when ever the vaccine yeah. has been created and distributed. I think by the time people are inoculated or, or are given that vaccine, that's when I think people will feel a little bit safer to do things on kind of a quote unquote normal you know, routine or nor you know normal schedule. But as of right now, I mean, like, I, I I keep even thinking about TIFF. We haven't really heard anything that's going on with them in terms of just you know the 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 festival as a whole. And like, you know, is it going to all be digital? Is there going to be some sort of local component to it? Yeah. What are the movies that are going to be shown? I, I mean, everybody's in the same boat when it comes to the, the festival season, but. But looking at just going to the movies, like, yeah, I could say like, oh, I could go to a, a, a 1030 screening at the Cineplex in, in Ajax yeah. or or the landmark cinema in Whippy uh, around the same time. But you could now see a shift of more people doing that as well because they might be thinking the same thing. If I want to see this movie, the best time to see it might be at that time. And now also because I'm working at home, I don't have to get up as early to drive to work so I can do that. So that's another thing where like, I 
don't want to be in a room with a lot of people. So there are so many factors to consider. And and to be honest, I don't think I would be comfortable at least until we, we figured something out that's more sort of implemented. Like I, I think like when certain businesses are allowed to operate again right away, like we're, we're seeing certain things be lifted now, I still don't feel comfortable going out. And oh yeah, I'm, I, I agree. Places without a mask and gloves, and again, partly it's not because I'm just worried about my own health. It's because like I have two grandparents. Uh, my grandmother is in her late eighties. My grandfather is ninety two, and you know I've been taking food to their place and leaving it there, and and you know I have to worry about them. My my stepfather has uh, type two diabetes, and he's more susceptible. So you know those are people in my life that oh totally to, i'm with you ne- nevis with her yeah. with her cancer last year and, and things like that like it just uh uh not saying that like again i worry about her maybe there's nothing to worry about but like it's just uh i think there is you don't want to take that chance yeah exactly the small chance that if her immune system is compromised at all that like we try to only go out for you know little bit of exercise or if we need groceries or something like that and then everything else like i just it's got to end sometime it's just hard because you want to listen to health professionals and you're seeing the u.s open up a lot more and it might be premature i was gonna make a joke which is because there probably will be (laughs) a, a second wave and the other thing that i also worry about and maybe i've talked about it um before um is that it could also mutate like that's the thing that would be um the scariest scenario at this point because if the disease mutates i mean who knows how strong that second wave or a mutation could be right Mm -hmm. like it's one of those situations where if it mutates it could be more hazardous to even younger people's health yeah yeah i don't know it'll be interesting to follow i mean this is month three we've done two months of it already right so who knew unhinged would bring out this thoughtful (sighs) and provocative conversation yeah um a couple more things we can quickly go over um the shirley trailer dropped eric's thoughts on that uh yeah it's uh the shirley jackson biopic that played at sundance starring uh elizabeth moss as the titular shirley looks good um i I am really excited to check this uh, one out. It's from the director of uh, Madeline's Madeline, uh, which also played at Sundance a couple years ago. And it seems to be an interesting sort of take on your quote unquote traditional biopic set at home. It almost kind of reads the same way as Capone, but still looks interesting and sort of like, you know, people descending into madness in a later part of their, their life and, you know, people around them kind of figuring out how to approach them in the situation. But I mean, Elizabeth Moss right now is just, you know, like on fire with the roles she's choosing and the performances she's giving. And I know you weren't the biggest fan of her smell, but even you would, would agree that like the performance performance, she's giving is yeah is is incredible and with the invisible man as well so um i just I'm, picked I'm that up because i got 15 dollars on uh yeah and i gotta i gotta be the neon stand here right? of course so. yes um what is becky you put that on here i think so becky i put that on there just because i thought you would uh watch this and we could <laughs> laugh at it becky okay. is a uh home thriller starring kevin james oh as yeah the, villain. the nazi thing where he's like I didn't watch it. Uh, did you watch it? I sure did. And it wow. looks 
fake. Does it? Yeah. It, even from the image oh, yeah. I'm seeing right now, it doesn't look uh, real. Uh, I have... Oh, God. I put a... I hate when a random ad pops up on YouTube right before. I'm watching it now. No one can hear this probably, but... Okay, this Kevin James. Uh, Kevin, ja- Kevin James with oh a swastika on his head, wonderful, and a giant beard. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't look real. He kind of looks like I. Oh, it's uh, what's his name from Community too. Kevin James with that beard looks like my friend Ryan. Um, very much so. Um, yeah, well, I, that's I, not nice. I heard. Well, not that. I mean. I know. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Um, Yeah, I'll watch that after this. But I remember reading the description of it and going, I don't know if I need to watch that trailer. (laughs) Should we review it, though? You should. Yes. Okay, we will. Uh, Lovecraft County, uh, which is – or country or county? Country. Uh, Country. Uh, um, HBO series, right? Yes, that will be premiering in August from J.J. Uh, Abrams, um, and it's based loosely – I can't remember the name of the author of the book, but it's taking the H.P. Lovecraft sort of uh, milieu and putting it in a new context in a sort of 1950s period piece, piece with, again, Jonathan, Jonathan Majors, Majors in there a we go. role. Yeah. I, I like this trailer. I, I thought um, the monsters look cool. Um, I'm, I mean, I it produced by Jordan Peele and JJ Abrams. I'm in, um, I'm looking for a new, another good HBO show after Watchmen. Um, uh, HBO, so, we thought Westworld would be it, but it's not. No, they keep trying, but <laughs> uh, I, I haven't heard good things about the third season of, of Westworld. So um I never went back to it after that second season, like dropping off and then, uh, but this looks cool. I don't, I, who knows if I'll get around to it right away. And um, I'm surprised it's not a HBO max thing, but, and I never know the difference now of what is HBO max and what's going to be HBO. Cause it kind of all, I guess kind of blends together, but. Um, well, if Anna Kendrick is in it, it's, the, it's a quibby show. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think this looks cool, man. Yeah, I, I'm 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 very curious about it. So Misha Green is the uh, creator. It's eight episodes, and it's based on uh, Matt Ruff's book. And it'll just be interesting to see how, like, for people that aren't aren't aware. I mean, H.P. Lovecraft is uh, known for you know his sort of uh, monsters and horrors, sort of uh, other worlds and dimensions and the elders. Some of his most popular adaptations were by the late Stuart Gordon, Reanimator, From Beyond, things like that. Guillermo del Toro has been trying to make At the Mountains of Madness for uh, centuries. Now. <laughs> and, and, and for people that don't know, H.P. Lovecraft was a super racist, like huge. Like he was one of those racists that didn't like like certain white people, like – he hated the Dutch. Um, so it's so interesting how they've interesting. taken that and twisted it. <laughs> like Exactly. And, yeah. and seeing like who is the monster and what is the monster and sort of playing with that iconography and sort of like, it, it, again, like H.P. Lovecraft also married a Jewish woman and was anti-Semitic. So um, it, yeah, it will be very interesting to see how they kind of play on that. Yeah, looks cool. I'm definitely in. 
Uh, and then, sorry, I pulled up my notes. Anything else? Uh, my phone went silent. Um, oh, I wanted to talk about the Eurovision movie clip. <laughs> that, uh, oh, Netflix. Volcano Man. Yeah, Volcano Man, which is now available to stream on Apple Music and other places. So they released a music video oh, for... Song? Yeah. Um, oh, wow. Uh, with Rachel McAdams and Will Ferrell uh, doing the music video for Volcano Man. Um very into this it gave me you know pop star vibes obviously lonely island kind of vibes um uh i'm sure this movie i have no idea if it'll be any good but um i'm curious and i love just will ferrell being ridiculous and uh i love seeing rachel mcadams uh get back into like comedy and stuff like that too because i remember her in wedding crashers and and stuff like that in the early in her career i don't know if that's early but from what i remember well, she's great in uh, uh mean girls yeah, as well, right yeah exactly mean girls is probably a better example but wedding crushers is more my thing being the bro that i am um or what you were more of a fan of the hot chick oh god um i'm trying to find the eurovision movie what what it's actually called um there it is um it's called eurovision song contest the story of fire saga <laughs> uh oh directed by david <laughs> david dobkin <laughs> director of so the it judge. is from the director of uh the and uh wedding crashers isn't it oh yeah Can it is there you go yeah. there you go so it, i that did make sense um but also of the judge so <laughs> and the change up uh come on you got will ferrell rachel mcadams pierce brosnan dan stevens demi lovato graham norton uh i'm in uh, I don't know. I like that clip. It's a Netflix film coming out June 26th. Watch the clip. It's pretty funny. Um, yeah, I like Will Ferrell being Will Ferrell. I was actually rewatching uh, a clip of his recently when he was on Conan and he shaved Conan's uh, yeah, beard. Uh, beard. Yeah, good stuff. <laughs> I just, I'm, I love Will Ferrell. I'll watch him in anything. And he wrote the movie as well um, and is producing it. Um, well, co wrote the movie. Well, doesn't he have. Um isn't his family's background uh scandinavian yeah which is why i think they are playing scandinavian in this um definitely in i will watch the shit out of that okay two hours into the show and we're getting to the news baby there's a ton of news we'll fly through it these are usually like speed round of what we think about what's going on in the entertainment industry um firstly um over the last couple of weeks, we lost some um, some legends. Um, Eric and I forgot to mention on our last episode that uh, the great Irfan Khan passed away um, right kind of right before we started recording that episode, or or right uh, right near that episode. And um, I had the chance to interview Irfan. I don't know, Eric, if you did as well. Um, I interviewed him in 2013 for the lunchbox at TIFF. Um, which was is a lovely, lovely movie that you guys should check out if you haven't uh, watched it. It's excellent. I think it's on sale on on Apple uh, right now for like five bucks or something. Um, I saw that movie at TIFF, and I, I knew Irfan Khan from you know Slumdog Millionaire. I guess was maybe my introduction to Irfan Khan in like when he would be involved in somewhat American uh, cinema, or, or um, I guess it's more of UK uh with danny boyle but like anyways that was my one of my first introductions to Irfan khan uh in mainstream movies i guess um and interviewing him he was such he was so lovely at in tiff 2013 i, I remember 
talking to him for the lunchbox. And he, I remember him staying after the interview and being like, if you really like this movie, you should check out this movie and this movie that I was in. Um, and just being a very gentle soul and a, and a great interview. And um, I always loved seeing him pop up in things. And um, I know he got sick a few years back. And I remember, I think we probably talked about that on one of these shows, or maybe it was just me and you talking. Um, and it, just so sad, way too young, uh, a really, uh, really good guy. And uh, um, I just will always remember that interview with him. And uh, he left a very good Im- impression on me. You also interviewed uh, Ritesh uh, Batra as yeah, well, right? The I did. director of the Lunchbox at yep. uh, that time too. Yes. Also um, a very yeah, great guy. He, he – Irfan Khan is one of those actors that, you know, in supporting roles or leads is always so compelling to watch. And just, you know, those eyes and, and the silence that he is able to sort of echo compels you to him. And – the first time I remember watching him in a movie, because like, I mean, obviously he had an extensive uh, Bollywood career. Yeah. But the, the, the first time I, or the year I remember him kind of being kind of uh, uh, a name popping up uh, a couple times was in Miranera's The Namesake uh, with Cal Penn and um, A Mighty Heart, the Michael Winterbottom movie right. with uh, Angelina Jolie. And in both of those movies, you know, like, I mean, there's a, an emotional core to a father-son relationship in the namesake, but as a police detective in uh, A Mighty Heart as well, he leaves these lasting impressions where it's like, I could see this whole movie being restructured around him. He's that compelling to watch on screen and so emotionally sort of invested in the characters and just there. Like, he's he's in the moment. He's with the actor working and and always present and you just can't help but kind of gravitate towards him when he's on screen. He is such a good actor. He is so good that for a brief moment in Ron Howard's Inferno, the movie gets good when he's in it. And it's almost like, why didn't you just make this movie around his character and his performance? It could have been watchable. Um, And yeah, he was way too young. Like even again, like something like Life of Pi as kind of like the the, the older version of the the protagonist and the few scenes that he has in that movie. I'm not the biggest fan of that film, but I think his scenes are very uh, emotionally wrought and and meaningful. And he brings something that's so sincere to everything he does. And yeah, I I think the lunchbox is probably my favorite of his um, sort of, bigger movies if you will yeah um but he he was always good and he was yeah he was always one of those guys that like when he would show up you would just kind of be like oh, even I'm, an amazing I, spider-man I like this movie even more even yeah, a, yeah yeah like a bad movie where Irfan khan shows up and you're like intrigued and and he kind of captivates you and like jurassic world another example of like if you're talking about big hollywood stuff that he kind of pops up in where that he's probably better than the movie even deserves in a lot of those movies. Um, yeah. But it was like, nice to see him He's the only one in Jurassic a, yeah. World that's kind of like, ha- seems to actually be having fun in that kind of billionaire role. Yeah, I agree completely. And um, yeah, it, very, very sad. And like, I mean, that just kind of kicked off kind of these things come in, in, in groups, but um also, two comedy legends, um, Jerry Stiller and Fred Willard, um, passed away as well in the last in the last week. Uh, Jerry Stiller, the father of Ben Stiller, 
Um, a lot of you guys would know him from Seinfeld in the nineties and many, many other things. It's Frank Costanza. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and then Fred Willard, who you would know from a lot, a lot of, uh, Christopher Guest movies and tons and tons and tons of other things. Um, Anchorman. Anchorman. Yeah. Talking about Judd Apatow and, and, and Will Ferrell and things like that. And, um, so two comedy legends passing away in the last week. Uh, Eric, I don't know if you have anything to say about your favorite from Jerry Stiller and Fred I, Willard. I, uh, like them both quite a bit. And, um, I mean, obviously as well, Matt, you being a fan of Zoolander, I he, love Zoolander, he steals yeah. the, the scenes that he's in as, uh, Derek Zoolander's, uh, agent. Um, but the thing I've always liked about Jerry Stiller is he's one of those guys that like, you look at his early career, like he started as kind of like a, uh show tunes kind of actor had comedic uh interest but would also pop up in something like the taking of palom one two three the original version with uh walter Matthau and, and robert shaw and you know he was a great character actor and then you know seinfeld was the show that kind of gave him his second wind and as frank costanza i mean like the whole festivus thing is incredible but his delivery as kind of almost like this bitter old man that you know george costanza played by jason alexander is going to probably eventually become yeah is should be depressing but it's hilarious to watch and just the way like he shouts and yells at you i think he was one of the best actors to shout yes there's there's control with the way that he yells at people and, and things and then with fred willard like he's one of those guys that you know like he is funny just in his facial expressions and you know watching him obviously work with you know christopher uh guest and his sort of ensemble of of character actors in improv like he's one of those guys that can be in a couple of scenes and steal the whole movie like he did in best in show but he also just again i think was kind of underrated and like even in something like wally where he is dude i a put human being yeah, wally i put wally on the other night and i cannot wait to rewatch wally because that uh, the fred willard thing made me pop it on because i remember him i remember how jarring and, and strange that was at the beginning of wally just to you see, don't need to animate uh, fred yeah, willard yeah. in a pixar movie he's already animated enough and uh, just that all the humans and, and all the video footage are real and i just remember i'm like man wally's kind of fucked up and then like i put the beginning of wally on i'm like i gotta rewatch this shit because i remember really loving wally but i haven't watched it since it came out well i also um, feel like we'll be where wally is like once that's what i mean yeah from dude wally is like crazy i'm like how is this a children's film i'm watching the opening of it and it's just wally is excellent and i can't wait to go back and and, and rewatch it and um i haven't seen it since 2008 probably and i probably will appreciate it even more now but um, but yeah, Fred Willard was one of those guys you always love seeing pop up and he'd always be like in a very small role, but again, a guy who would be a scene stealer and a movie stealer really. Um, and, uh, I love just seeing him pop up or hearing his voice in something. Yeah, they were, I mean, they were both great. Yeah. So. And then, um, as you mentioned earlier on the show, um, Lynn Shelton um, uh, passed away at 54. Um, really, really sad from a, I think, a blood disorder. Um, is, yeah, which yeah. could have been something like leukemia yeah. related because that usually, yeah, they didn't specify they didn't, what it was. Exactly. But 54, um, very, very, very young. Uh, she was a feature film director, but also directed um, 
countless television shows like Eric mentioned, like you, you use the analogy of you throw a dart on a board of, of popular television shows and she probably directed a, a few episodes. So uh, she directed stuff in like in Glow, Master of None, Good Place, uh, uh, Dickinson, which is a new Apple TV Plus uh, show with uh, Haley Steinfeld and uh, just a ton of other stuff too. Uh, I remember seeing Laggies at TIFF, I think in 2014, 2015. So uh, really, really sad. 54 is way too young. Yeah, I, I think she's one of those filmmakers. Well, you can tell by her resume that when you know she she's directed nine movies. I haven't seen Sort of Trust yet. I want to watch that. I probably will get to it um, in the next week or so because uh, it's on Netflix right now um, in Canada, at least, anyways. Um, but you can tell by her career, nine movies and so many TV shows that she's a, a personality that always has to be working and always seems to want to be working. And that creative passion is something that, you know, is so infectious and listening to her. Um, I remember watching her during a Q and a for your sister, sister, um, the uh, Emily Blunt, uh, Rosemary DeWitt uh, movie from 2012. And, just hearing her excitement to, you know, work and, you know, create these small intimate dramas. Like you could tell she was just, you know, in her zone when she was making and creating movies. And then, you know, I actually had a chance to talk to her just briefly um, uh, at an industry meeting. I bumped into her and I recognized her and, and I had seen your sister's sister at that point. We started talking just about Emily Blunt and I had, I had asked her if she had seen my summer of love or was it devil's wear Prada that the reason why you cast it. And she said, you know what? Nobody has really seen the uh, Pavel Pavlikovsky movie. And we started talking about that for a few minutes and she was just so kind and, and, and opened and like gave, you know, some nerd weirdo like me the time of day and, you know, was kind with anybody that she would have a conversation with. And then like, we just go wandering down the street afterwards and just see what was going on and didn't care about sort of going anywhere specific or, you know, taking a, a taxi or, or a van anywhere. Like she just wanted to be, you know, in Toronto. And I thought that was just kind of cool. That is really cool. Uh, okay. Um, some nice tributes uh, there. Let's move on to uh, kind of a rapid fire of the news since we're getting a little long in the tooth on the 69th episode. Uh, breaking news as we were kind of recording. Um, it's I don't think this is really news, but Variety did do an article about it. Um, they're saying that the Academy is considering postponing the 2021 Oscars already. Um I don't know. I, I mean, I think everyone's considering everything at this point. I think it's probably way too early. Uh, but depending on how, you know, if we don't really have many movies that get released for the rest of the year, you don't really have any. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, Bad Boys for Life genuinely has a chance to get a Best Picture nomination. Um, this is Capone's time to shine. <laughs> that best original. Shit. Yeah, best original shit play um, Oscar for this year i don't know not really news um i don't know if you have anything to say about this eric but i mean i i don't i'm not surprised that they're considering postponing it but i don't know i think it's still a bit too yeah. early. yeah i think we can talk about it more if it's made official and what that means for the future but as of now it's it's only 
speculation and rumors. So I think we can just kind of take that with a grain of salt, keep an eye on it. But, um, you know, it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens in the months ahead. We have a uh, trio of Mandalorian news. So um, first off, Katie Sackoff has joined a Mandalorian season two as the live action version of her character, Bo-Katan from the Clone Wars. Uh, or sorry, Clone Wars or um, uh, da, 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 yeah, or Clone Wars character, um, which uh, is interesting seeing someone who did a voice for. I mean, the character kind of looks like her too, but um, she did a voice for uh, uh, Bo Katan throughout the Clone Wars television series, and now reprising that role, but in uh, live action for Mandalorian, I think is really interesting. Uh, Eric, I'll go over the other two pieces of news, and we can talk as a whole about it. Um, we have uh, uh, Tamura Morrison is coming back uh, to the Star Wars universe to play uh, Commander Bo- Cody. Yeah, uh, I mean, yes. Uh, but he's going to be playing Boba Fett, which is uh, interesting, which we will talk about that in a moment. Uh, so uh, Morrison played Jango Fett in the prequels. Um, so it only makes sense that he would be playing, you know, Boba Fett, an unmasked Boba Fett, or maybe a masked Boba Fett in Mandalorian. So Boba Fett, you'd think that guy's dead or he's in the Sarlacc pit. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh Two other pieces of news, lots of Mandalorian stuff. Uh, Timothy Oliphant um, has joined the cast. Um, he is going uh, to be playing a... Um, so there was more news that came out today that he might be playing a character from uh, the books. Uh, shit, I had I had the article here. Um, but it's going to... He's basically a sheriff on Tatooine because now that the Fets have fallen because uh 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 not fet sorry huts the huts <laughs> have fallen <laughs> uh i've got all my fets and huts mixed up but uh since the huts have fallen uh tatooine has been split up into you know different factions in different areas so he plays a sheriff who somehow gets a hold of boba fett's armor um, so he plays a sheriff of this town on Tatooine who has Boba Fett's armor, but he is not Boba Fett. Uh, so how that plays into, you know, season two of the Mandalorian, um, and all of this plays into it is intriguing. Um, would have liked, I know they teased Boba Fett in episode one of the, the end of the Tatooine episode with Bobby Cannavale's son, um, uh, wow. Really nice sunset. Actually, Nevis is going to take photos. Yeah, it's really, really nice actually right now. Um, anyways, Eric, your thoughts. Um, the Boba Fett stuff for me is intriguing, but it's almost something I would have just liked to have been revealed in the show. I wouldn't have liked that to be spoiled through casting news, but um, I- I'm curious. I like Timothy Oliphant a lot. Uh, Tamora Morrison I like, although the the you know Django Fett and how they sort of ruined all of that in the in the prequels is not so great and then katie sackoff is great so it's cool to see someone play an animated character and this we also have news that you know rosario dawson is probably playing ahsoka tano in 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 the mandalorian so it's it's interesting to see dave filoni working on the series and in, in implementing a lot of the stuff from his you know animated shows into now live action i think is kind of uh kind of fascinating really 
I think uh, Timothy Oliphant just has to do all westerns now because going from mm-hmm. Deadwood and Deadwood the movie to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and playing, you know, the Newtown sheriff and the Lancer pilot. And now this kind of feels almost like uh, a perfect sort of uh, circle, if you will. Uh, it's like I have to do a, a, a postmodern sci-fi western. Yeah. And this is the one that that seals the deal. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have too much to say other than I hope we get to see the Sarlacc pit again. Yeah. I would be, uh, very I have, intrigued we have to. to see that, uh, phallic, uh, pit. <laughs> 69th episode. Give me that Sarlacc. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I know that you're more of a Tamara Morrison fan when it comes to Aquaman. Oh and yeah. Green you, know. Lantern. <laughs> you know it, you know it, dude. Um, no, I, I like him. Um, and then I, I have a new appreciation for, I guess the prequels and the prequel period because of the Dave Filoni animated shows that I kind of got into much later. Like I still think the prequels are, are bad or are not great, but I do think clone wars and, and rebels and, and, and that stuff has kind of given me a, an, another point of view on, on those movies and while it doesn't improve them i think it does help you know characters that weren't so great in the prequels actually have pretty good character arcs and development in these television shows so um i mean darth maul being an example i think he's actually a really great character that has a fleshed out character arc in these animated shows well you sent me uh, a a still of grievous right yeah yeah and i uh and, and Grievous is used way more in the in the animated show. That uh, I didn't know that, but I think that's in his backstory that he wasn't always the cyborg and stuff like that. I had no idea, but um, he's like a proto Darth Vader. Yeah, kind of. And then, um, but Anakin Skywalker and like, um, and I think Ahsoka Tano is one of the best Star Wars characters, and she's only lived in in these animated shows. So I feel like there's a whole subsect of Star Wars fans that probably had never watched these shows like like i had and so to kind of see some of that stuff get brought into live action and and show show people that like yeah Django fed and the clones and stuff like that like they really make you joke about commander cody because it is kind of a joke in <laughs> in uh in the movies but in the shows commander cody is a character and he has an arc and like you know who he is and all what's fascinating about what the clone wars tv series did is like they have these arcs and and they gave distinct personalities to all of the clones and to a large subsect of these clones and which i thought was really interesting and in the movies it's kind of becomes like a joke that it kind of ruined boba fett and and the the clones were kind of stupid and then in this they each clone has its own personality and yes they all look and sound the same but like they are very much given personalities and are different characters and um i found that really really interesting so if you bring back uh, tomorrow Morrison, who's going to be playing, you know, Boba Fett in this. And, uh, and he is an actual, you know, a perfect clone of it where the other ones are manipulated a little bit. And, um, what happens to him, like after this Sarlacc pit and there were rumors they were going to make that, you know, there's been rumors for a while that he escapes, he crawls out, his armor's all damaged and he's all fucked up and scarred and stuff like that. So, um, it could be really, really interesting. Um, and, and, how Disney and, and and Star Wars is bringing back some of these actors from, you know, the prequels and different things like that, I think is interesting. And 
and uh i'm totally into it i mean to see you know the mandalorian interact with some of these characters that we have come to know whether it's from the prequels or the uh the original films or now the animated shows i think is 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 cool but it also is falling into that territory that you know we were finally think we finally thought we were kind of getting away from is always having to involve characters that we already know from the other movies right yeah, no, I agree. And and I think it's it, it, you made a good point that, you know, the prequel films are still abysmal, but at the same time you have people like Dave Filoni who are coming in now almost doing damage control in a, in a weird way and and sort of fleshing out, you know, the the character arcs and the storylines and making them better. And I think it goes to show you that after Lucas had, you know, given the reins to other directors to do empire strikes back and return of the Jedi, he should have stayed the course and sort of had, you know, creative input obviously, but brought people in to help write and, and direct these movies because at the point that when Lucas was making, you know, Phantom Menace and, and attack of the clones and, and revenge of the Sith, I feel like he just was, he just didn't know the the world the way he he initially set it up and you know coming back to it the way he's not he is not a good writer but i think there was something charming when he crafted a lot of this stuff and 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 i think somebody could have like dave filoni at least on a screenplay stage could have done something more with those prequels, especially looking at them retrospectively. Yeah. And I think he showed that in clone wars, like Lucas was a big part of clone wars, the animated series, but Filoni was really the guy steering that ship and watching the behind the scenes for the Mandalorian show, which I, I I talked about a little bit, I think maybe even, I think it was off air when we finished recording some reviews the other day. That's another thing I've been watching that I didn't mention earlier. Um, But Filoni, I think, I think that's why he's so heavily involved with Favreau is because he is that star Wars historian or that guy that has been living and breathing star Wars in both the Lucas era and now in the Disney era. So he's kind of bridging that gap and kind of been that continuity master and then that guy that knows everything and, and, um about star wars and i think that's why they gave him a shot to derive uh, even though i think his episodes were some of the weaker episodes in season one of mandalorian um uh, i think he's obviously a very smart guy and really knows star wars so when you start to involve these things from his shows and then um you're taking things like a character from a, a book series that is canon um it, sorry i got it right now the character's name is cobb vanth and he is from chuck wendig's aftermath series um which takes place i think after uh return of the jedi um and so that would be in this time period so vanth is the self-appointed this is from slash film just want to give them credit because i think it was their exclusive as well uh vanth is the self-appointed sheriff of tatooine based settlement freetown and he wears a mysterious set of Mandalorian armor that was acquired from Jawas who scavenged the wreckage of Jabba the Hutt's barge after uh, Return of the Jedi. So they don't uh, they don't say it's Boba Fett's armor in the bo- book, but it seems like maybe that's uh, where it's coming from. But um, that's cool. Great um, name yeah. as well. Chuck Wendig. Yeah, Chuck Wendig. He, he's written a lot of Star Wars stuff. Um, great name and a great writer, too. So, um yeah, anyways, um, we said we're going to fly through this and then we spend 20 minutes on Mandalorian. <laughs> um, I'll get through the rest of this stuff. 
All right, that covers all the Mandalorian stuff. Um, Mindy Kaling is going to be teaming up with Dan Gore uh, to write Legally Blonde uh, 3. Uh, Dan Gore is the showrunner for Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So, I mean, you got Mindy Kaling, who wrote a lot of The Office um, and is a great writer in her own right. And then uh, Dan Gore, who's doing great stuff on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I don't know if I need a Legally Blonde 3 or even care about a Legally Blonde 3, but if you're going to attach two people that will make me sort of curious about it, I I like both of them. Yeah, I don't really have much to say uh, as well, other than that's kind of an interesting team up. It was supposed to actually be released theatrically this month. The There was an original date for Illegally Blonde 3 uh, to come out this year. But they never um, shot that, right? No, 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 yeah. no, no. It was just – but it's it's weird because I, I, I'm, I'm mentioning it because on uh, – uh, the Critics' Choice website, uh, every week we can vote for or, or give our ratings of movies, and Legally Blonde 3 is on there. Oh, they haven't removed it. And I was like, it. why is this on there? It's very weird. And no, they haven't. So, uh, A piece of news you sent me. Um, Adam Sandler is teaming up with LeBron James for a basketball movie called Hustle. That's going to be... Well, after uh, working with Kevin Garnett in Uncut Gems... He's got to keep working with basketball players. Well, and Sandman loves basketball, right? I think like everywhere he goes, oh, he tries yeah, to yeah. play pickup games and things like that. So it uh, looks like it's going to be, you know, uh, it's him with Netflix again, but it seems like it's a drama. So, I, I mean, I'm always down for Adam Sandler. To, he is a good actor. So I like seeing him take on um, some more dramatic roles. And something that he might actually be interested yes, in doing. Exactly. I think he's working with the director of uh, We Are Animals. Yes, um speed round continues uh scream five is actually happening and it looks like a lot of the original cast might come back so nev campbell um again third nev campbell reference on this episode um but she hinted that she might be coming back um it's confirmed that david arquette is coming back as deputy dewey uh, Riley. wwe uh, uh, sorry WWE, wcw uh, champion wcw champion yeah david arquette which is one of my favorite uh things that ever happened um but no i'm kind of cautiously curious about scream 5 i kind of liked scream 4 and i like the scream franchise as a whole um scream 3 maybe not so much but um i actually really really dig these movies and it looks like um uh, the directors of ready or not um matt uh Betten- the radio silence yeah, ra- guys, let's yeah. just say radio silence um tyler gillett and matt uh bettinelli open um known as radio silence will be directing it and james vanderbilt and guy Busick um are uh, wrote the script so james vanderbilt you might know as- vanderbilt wrote yeah. zodiac yeah and uh guy- amazing spider-man and guy Busick wrote castle rock um, and Kevin Williamson uh, is going to executive produce, but that might just be from, you know, that they kind of have to. Um, curious. First one, not directed by Wes Craven. Um, well, it, because Wes Craven is also what, sadly passed away. Yes, of right? course. But um, I'm curious. I, I, I liked Ready or Not enough. Um, I think those guys are good choices for this. I think bringing back, I wonder if they'll take the Halloween route and kind of do a legacy sequel kind of thing, even though it's only been 10 years since Scream 4, right? 
and um, but four kind of tried to do the legacy yeah. thing a little bit as well someone brought up and a. It, it's so, always been a pop culture thing yeah right? like in terms of like it, 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 the meta nature of the the series and so if you want to take that meta-ness to another level i saw an interesting pitch by uh god i'm sorry i'm blanking but i think uh, someone who's big in the horror community and in the film community on twitter pitched it of being like go the full like Wes craven's new nightmare kind of thing of like have the actors from scream play themselves and someone's murdering them in real life kind of thing and and they brought up a really cool thing that like kick off the movie with drew barrymore again and have her be killed in the opening moments of the movie but she's just playing drew barrymore and then have maybe the actors of scream be taken out by someone who's dressing as Ghostface. and um i don't know i kind of like that um right because there's also the tv series too right right that was on on mtv right well it was mtv in the u.s netflix here uh i didn't watch any of it i've i think some people liked it but it felt too teen you know cw networky for me um but i have a soft spot for the screen movies i really i really do i um they were like the first even though they're not quite horror comedies, but are, are kind of there um, playing with that meta kind of satire kind of thing. But um, I just remember my sister being terrified of Ghostface when we were a kid and they were like, it was the first horror icon of that. I remember of our, like I obviously there was the Freddy Kruegers and the uh, Michael Myers and the, the Jasons from right before our era and I think those people were etched in my brain, but that was the first one I remember with those movies coming out in the nineties um, of thinking that they were super, super scary, even though they, they aren't really scary. They're more entertaining than scary, but um, I was, and it was kind of ruined by scary movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember really enjoying those first couple movies because of that as, as well. But I don't know. I have a soft spot for the scream franchise and I I'm, I, I'm curious to see what these guys do with it. Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm mixed on the Scream franchise. I think two is my favorite of them. That's the one with Laurie Metcalf, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, but there were moments in, in, in one and two that I, I do generally like, and I understand why that movie works and why, what it's referencing, especially with, you know, deconstructing the slasher flick. Yeah. Um, specifically, it's just that sometimes I found some of the references to be a little bit grating in the same way that, you know, we talked about it with, with Kevin Smith, you know, Kevin Smith, his ironically his Jay and Silent Bob in the third one. <laughs> right, right, right. Or yeah. And, and also they were in uh West Craven was in uh Jay and Silent Bob strike, strike back. back yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I met and, and uh, Gus Van Zant with the, it's hunting season <laughs> yeah. uh, sequence. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there are moments in, in the first two that are interesting. Like I even remember as a kid watching the first one and being like, wow, Henry Winkler's in this. This is, this is strange. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it could be an interesting legacy movie, but it's weird. Like I want to go back and rewatch four, but I remember seeing that in the theater and just kind of being, bored with it with the exception of one kill that i thought was really intense and mean considering yeah gets it in the face yeah uh, oh yeah on anthony anderson um but other than that i uh i'm not against it I, so i but I'm, i don't hold scream in, in in a high regard i don't like new nightmare either and i know a lot oh, of really? people I consider really... that 
I like it a lot. I hate it. <laughs> I like it a lot. Um, Lord and Miller news. Eric teased at earlier in the show. Uh, they are going to be directing uh, uh, Ryan Gosling in a new astronaut movie for MGM, uh, which is uh, based off of a novel from the Martian author Andy Weir. I already thought they were attached to this before, or was that a different movie? No, it was. It was. Um. Uh. What's his name? The guy who did Ready Player One. Right. The Artemis or whatever. Or... Oh no. yes. Yeah. They, he, they were going to do that over at. Uh, uh. I think at Fox or Disney or somewhere. Yeah. It, was, it had some sort of like conf, uh, conflict. We were talking about it before because of um, them being fired uh from solo and that what whether or not that would have any bearing on them which they're obviously not doing that (laughs) yeah uh so ryan gosling but they wanted to do a sci-fi movie yeah yeah no this sounds cool i'm into it um uh they said that like it was like um gosling who's the one who said that they would be perfect for this so um i'm curious of like the book's not even out yet i don't think so uh, I have no idea what it's uh, what it's really about, but uh, it's not published and won't be until next spring, and it's untitled, but it's being referred to as Project Hail Mary, the solitary tale of an astronaut on a spaceship who is tasked with saving the planet. I don't know. I love Phil Lord and Chris Miller. At Astra 2. Yeah. I love Lord and Miller, so I will watch anything that they do, and I think they're two of the smartest guys working in Hollywood. So. Um, curious to see how their blend of you know humor works into this i guess and and because i don't see them as like big blockbuster filmmakers i mean i guess after being hired for solo um they were kind of considered that but um and i mean they've had huge success with obviously producing spider-verse and things like that as well but well, 10, 22 Jump Street felt like a, a bigger yeah, it movie does. than 21 Jump Street, right? I agree, but I wouldn't consider either of those movies like big blockbusters, I guess. But maybe that's just – I don't know. I, I see them as these like right. strange action comedies that I guess weren't super mainstream, but I guess they were. I don't know. Um, but I'm excited. I, I'll watch anything that those guys do, and I like Gosling a lot too. Um. Danny Boyle is going to direct Michael B. Jordan in Methuselah for Warner Brothers. Thoughts, Eric? I think it's going to be interesting seeing the pairing of Michael B. Jordan and Danny Boyle just because, I mean, Michael B. Jordan seems to be a guy that's very much interested in uh, more commercial sort of aspirations at this time and Danny Boyle being somebody that, you know, after having been let go or walking away from the bond movie, I think was maybe looking for something that was, you know, a studio esque, uh, production. So I think maybe these two coming together will, will add something kind of interesting. Um, whether or not it works, who knows? Because I mean, I wasn't the biggest fan of yesterday and I know that like, you know, that movie was very divisive and, and sometimes Boyle's direction can, get in the way of telling an interesting story but if it works we could have something really unique agreed um my dad saw yesterday and loved it he also loved ford v ferrari both of those make a lot of sense to me (laughs) um yeah i texted my dad i'm like dad i bought ford v ferrari for you because it was on sale for like ten dollars or something and i told him to watch it and he loved it 
Um, and the grass is green. Um, well, he saw himself in uh, in Tracy Letts, right? <laughs> uh, happy fifth anniversary to uh, one of the most overrated uh, movies of the last decade, Mad Max. How Fury dare Road. you, sir? How uh, dare you? Uh, so George Miller has teased that uh, Furiosa um, prequel that has been rumored for a while. Um, the one that was rumored that I think he met with Anna Taylor Joy, Anya Taylor Joy, and um, he orig- he talks about in a in an interview that he thought about doing you know um, just using Charlie's Theron and de aging her, but doesn't think that the technology is there yet. Um, do you think that this, uh, this will happen? I know there's, there's been some like legal battles with the studio over, there's a whole bunch of news that came out in the last, you know, week or so about the making of Mad Max Fury Road. There's a long article about, um, some of the issues that they had, um, making the movie. Yeah. From Um, Kyle Buchanan. It's, it's, it's a great read. There's two, there's one on, uh, the New York times as well, which is kind of like a follow-up article. Um, since I think this movie was the best film of the last 10 years and how fucking dare you (laughs) say that this is a mediocre movie, you're wrong. Mediocre. Uh, It's, uh, it's one of the best films ever made. I think in my opinion, one of the most rewatchable movies ever made. Um, but no, uh, going back to George Miller, it it will be interesting because I think another uh, important detail that actually connects to, uh, the Hail Mary as well, um, is that Miller is also working on another movie right now called uh, 3000 Years of uh, Yearning with uh, Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton that he just got greenlit through MGM, which MGM seems to try is trying to make a comeback now because they also greenlit uh, this Hail Mary movie and uh, Ridley Scott's uh, Gucci film. So it seems almost like they're, they're wanting to be director driven. So it depends how long that, takes to get made and miller seems to be like ready to go on that and even though there is a script ready for furiosa that they wrote for theron and everybody behind the scenes for backstory and and character development um that will take some time and also you know casting the right person like he seems very adamant and finding somebody who can you know uh fill those shoes that theron uh wore beforehand and you mentioned obviously Anya Taylor Joy, Jodie Cummer is another name that's popped up a couple times. Um, so that is going to be a very crucial piece of casting and just what they can get away with. Uh, there's another issue as well of like bringing some of the people back, um, you know, that that worked on it before. John Seal, who's a cinematographer, has been eventually has been officially retired um, since having shot that and before was called out of retirement to make that. So he'll only do it if if they're ready to go. And Miller says, you know, I, I want you to work with me again. Um, but now you also have to think about like COVID-19, you know, what are, what, yeah. what are the limitations going to be with that? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm still curious again. I, I don't hate that movie at all. I was mostly, I'm like half joking when I, I just try to, I had a tweet ready for its fifth anniversary and I'm like, I don't need to be that guy. Nevis told me not to tweet it. Um, it's like, uh, cause I think the movie's fine. I rewatched it with her the, um, uh, about a couple weeks ago and, um, I don't know. I think it's okay, but I'd be curious. You're entitled to your opinion, but you're wrong. I sure am. <laughs> I'm going to skip over some of this shit that we probably don't have much to say about. And cause we're two hours and 36 minutes into this. 
there are a couple things I still do want to mention. Um, Luca Guadagnino is going to be directing the Scarface reboot uh, scripted by the Coens for Universal. Um, interesting choice. Um, I mean, as much as I didn't like his Suspiria remake, um, or I did not like it. I, I guess I was mixed on it. I think it was interesting, <laughs> um, to say the least. Uh, and I, I think he's one of those guys that just might not be for me. Cause I, again, I think I was felt the same about call me by your name. Um, those being his last couple movies. So I don't know with the Cohen scripting this, and I don't know if I need a Scarface remake or reboot or whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, but if you're, gonna have anyone involved the cohen's writing it and and luca guadagnino directing is is definitely an interesting team of people making that movie yeah i mean this will be the if if it happens the third remake of scarface so um you know i i think you said it perfectly where the combination of luca guadagnino and the cohen's uh would be a fascinating fascinating proposition especially because this project has been through the hands of so many filmmakers you know from anton fuqua to peter berg and you know david ayer sort of a more david ayer a critically acclaimed filmmaker (laughs) who's kind of you know more of an indie uh darling than anything else to do something like this because he's also trying to get uh lord of the flies off the ground at warner brothers so right i wonder what he'll uh jump onto first um skipping skipping that skipping that i wanted to give a shout out um because robert downey jr and um uh will forte and james brolin are uh are kind of working on sweet tooth for netflix which is based on a comic book from jeff lemaire who's from uh from toronto so i wanted to give a shout out to jeff lemaire sweet tooth i haven't read it i've heard really good things um but uh that team of people are uh are really, really, um, sorry, I thought this said Ben Schwartz, but it's Beth Schwartz. Um, so just shout out to Jeff Lemaire and people should check out, um, his writing and his comics. Uh, Hamilton is coming to Disney plus over a year early. I thought that was fascinating. So we're getting Hamilton on Disney plus in July, um, instead of next year. Um, I think that's really cool. Uh, it's an interesting, it seems like, uh, July 4th, uh, that weekend um they'll be dropping it on disney plus um originally was going to get a theatrical release next year i guess disney wanted something for the summer and something probably pretty big for the summer on disney plus um so doing their kind of you know live recording of hamilton um should be really really interesting and i i mean i saw hamilton literally the night before they declared this uh, uh, a pandemic. So, um, but I was sitting in like the, the very last row of the Ed Mervish theater here in Toronto. So uh, I thought it was great, um, but I'd be curious to see a version where I can actually see uh, people's faces and see what's the original cast. and the original cast as well. And, and they, they keep talking about how it's this blend of live stage production and movie making. So I'm curious to see how they shot it. Uh, as well um it's good do you plan on watching this eric uh like yeah i'll watch it i'm not it's weird like out of the one like i know that you're not a big music fan but when it comes to the arts as an umbrella as a whole the one thing i'm not the biggest fan of and not that i don't like it i just don't really 
venture out and explore it is is theater i mean i i i worked in theater in high school um and that's about it and when it comes to theater productions like i've always kind of even theater adaptations i've always had this apprehension towards some of them and it's it's weird like there's nothing that really like even with this i was not like oh i need to go to new york to see it when it was originally playing or or see the Toronto version. I was just like, okay, that's cool. It's one of those things where um, I never seek it out. It's like documentary for me. Um, I I don't go out of my way, but then when I end up going to one or when I end up watching one, I end up really enjoying it. Um, and I go, why don't I do this more often? And then I always say that and then never do it more often. Um, so I, yeah. I really, en- your sister knows a yes. lot more about this stuff than, than we do. Oh, hundred percent. So. Yeah. And she loved Hamilton. So yeah, that's cool. I think a lot of people are super psyched about that. Okay. Quickly, last couple pieces of news. Kate Blanchett, uh, signed onto a, a, a couple new films. She's, excuse me, uh, uh, going to be star- <laughs> uh, starring in, uh, James Gray's next movie, Armageddon time. And she also signed on, uh, to Adam McKay's next movie, which also has, uh jennifer lawrence um as well and um a bunch of other people i think or maybe not um so Kate blanchett working with two uh great filmmakers i mean i i've been a fan of adam mckay's kind of you know pivot to um this weird you know uh prestige filmmaking um from him as well as uh james gray i really loved uh, ad astra and although he's a guy that's mostly like maybe wasn't our cup of tea i think eric we've talked about this at length where uh we were never really the biggest fans of james gray's stuff but um i think we both really loved ad astra so i'm curious to see what he follows that up with and we like him as a personality, especially yeah. as as a speaker. Yeah, he's, he's interesting. And Kate Blanchett's a great actress, so uh, definitely into that. And then finally, the last piece of news: uh, M. Night Shyamalan uh, has uh, the cast for his next movie. So, um, I mean, we talked about Alex Wolf uh, earlier in the show. Um, so Alex Wolf, uh, is in talks for one of the main roles in, uh, M Knight's next movie, as well as, uh, Thomas and McKenzie, Vicky creeps, uh, Eliza Scanlon, uh, and, uh, Aaron Pierre. Um, so I don't think we, yeah, plot details are under wraps. Um, but he's partnered with universal for this, um, which is supposed to come out, um, in next year, but we'll, we'll see. Um, I love this cast. I'm totally in. And M Knight is one of those guys. I think we've talked about him at length on the podcast over the years. Um, I think a guy that we constantly cheer for, no matter the ups and downs and how his, many times yeah, he burns us. Yeah. Yeah. The ups and downs in his filmography. Um, but I think a guy who had that couple, that one, two punch of six cents and signs um, early in his career um and unbreakable, and unbreakable even though that's been yeah. tarnished a little uh, bit with, with glass, uh, yeah. glass and um split yeah um but I, I will give him the benefit of the doubt and i think he he's uh, a good filmmaker that needs to be reined in a little bit and work with good writers and stuff like that so um he's back partnering with universal i i really like everyone in this cast so i'm curious to see where this goes yeah, I I just wish we had uh, listened to the warnings because I I recently pulled out my Blu-ray of Signs and you want to know what the tagline was? It's happening. Oh yeah, 
his career was happening. We should. Sure. We, he was warning us. He was warning us in advance. Signs is uh, great. Yeah, I, I like. I no signs. Is, I think. I mean, Unbreakable. I at least it's been a while since I've watched it, but Unbreakable, I would say, is my favorite M Night Shyamalan movie. But again, I think maybe with Split and Glass. A little of that has kind of tarnished it, but but it's still a great movie. I think it's my favorite of his. But Signs is up there. I think Signs is a better movie than um, Six Sense. I like Six Sense, but Six Sense is one of those films that I don't think holds up on rewatches, especially when like it, it is so it relies so heavily on that it, last basically twist. heavily on that twist. And there are great things in Six Sense. I think Bruce Willis gives one of his best performances in that movie. I like the look of the film. There's a lot of great stuff. But yeah, M. Night is one of those guys that is easy to kind of target and pick on. And justifiably there are there are, uh, there are things I understand about that. I mean, he has made some bad movies. Um, but when he's good, he's good. And, and I always hope that he'll return to greatness. Agreed. All right, Eric, it was a marathon session, but the 69th draft is coming to an end. Uh, we recorded a lot today. <laughs> it is now pitch black in my condo. Uh, we recorded a couple of reviews even before this episode. So uh, I'm always amazed that we can talk for four plus hours and um, this episode alone being two hours and 47 minutes. Um, but it was a pleasure, my friend. Um, yep. Thank you all for listening. Um, I know this is a real pleasure, <laughs> a roller coaster of an episode that, uh, started with a gag of it being the, uh, 69th draft, uh, and, uh, went through a, a lot of different things. Uh, but for, if you stuck around for this long, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you guys are hardcore and the best. If you got to two hours and 46 minutes, um, I hope we bring you some, sense of normalcy or some ridiculous if you're getting joy or if you like making fun of us however you listen to this um we really really do or just a distraction yeah a good distraction yeah that's why i love podcasts so i hope we can bring a distraction to you um over these uncertain times or whatever the hell that every commercial that you watch is is talking about but um thank you all for listening if you got this far i think you'll like our other podcast which we've referenced multiple times over this three hours uh it's called untitled movie reviews eric and i get together uh, i swear to god we promise you a much shorter length than two hours and 47 minutes and we talk about uh we review new release films uh usually those would be things that came out in theaters now we're focused solely on streaming stuff like everyone is. Uh, we have reviews up right now for the great documentary series, The Last Dance, um, as well as Scoob, uh, as well as Capone, as well as The Lovebirds. And you'll also have a, a review of uh, The High Note. Um, so tons of content over on Untitled Movie Reviews. So please go check that out. Um, Thank you all for listening. Um, as always, my name is Matt Rohrbeck. You can find more of my work around the internet, but mostly at untitledmoviepodcast.com. Um, and I'm bumming around all of the social medias at Matt Rohrbeck. I'm starting to faint here because I need to eat something. Um, I'm usually on Letterboxd Twitter. Um, if you guys have two seconds, we would really appreciate if you guys made it this long that you probably enjoy this podcast. Uh, if you could pop over to your favorite 
podcast service or all of the podcast services and just hit five stars or the top rating. That really helps us kind of get in front of uh, more people's ears. Uh, so we really, really appreciate you. You are hardcore if you lasted two hours and 50 minutes. Um, also, please go follow uh, Untitled uh, Movie Podcast on all of the social media platforms at Untitled underscore cast. Eric does a great job of informing you when there's new episodes, new reviews, all that jazz over on the social channels. Uh, so please go follow those as well. Yes, and I'm Eric March, and you can find more of my work at uh, OnlyFans slash EricMarchin.com. There's a lot of no. wonderful erotic photos. I'm not- <laughs> No, <laughs> that, would be that would be amazing. Uh, but uh, yeah, for this 69 draft, you want to see a hairy be the, 32 yeah. year old? I'm gonna put that as the headline. Eric started an OnlyFans. Uh, good lord, you can find more of my reviews at rogerstv.com. So I sit him and see the social media at 69. It's just it's just Eric photos of him with his Blu-rays and stuff like that, his 4Ks. Lying in suggestive poses. Yeah, just covering <laughs> your special area. Oh, man. Is that it? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Did you say? Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> Follow Eric on OnlyFans, onlyfans.com slash EM6211. Um, until next time, I, I really need to eat something, but um, stay horny, everyone. <laughs>